You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon, we're talking Bob Hoskins going straight gangster mode. Join the sleaze. <laughs> We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for, uh, oh my God, how long? I, long I don't time. even know. A long time. <laughs> I, I think I looked at it and we got something like 90 bonus episodes. We're getting pretty close to 100. And if you include our bonus transmission series where we talk about new release movies, uh, you know, we got even more than that. So patreon.com slash Sleezoids podcast that interests you. We, we actually have a bonus transmission. By the time you guys are listening to this going up tomorrow or we'll, where we will be yes. talking uh, Last Duel and Dune, which are going to be <laughs> big ones for people. So if that interests you at all. Uh, that's going to be dropping tomorrow. And speaking of which, we did have a bunch of people make the jump this month. So many that I'm going to have to really rip through this. So apologies to anyone if this I This is my favorite part. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have Corey uh, Donovan and Connor McGonigal, who both upgraded from $5 to $10 uh, yeah. this month. Uh, and will be joining us for the monthly virtual screenings we do for the $10 patrons. I think this month it's uh, Noir Vember. I think we were looking at possibly doing Detour yeah, with everyone. So awesome. if that interests you at all, that's what we're going to be doing with Connor and Corey. So thanks to those guys for joining us. Um, we've got Alec Juvelli, Aiden Hadley, Diego Crespo, actually friend of the pod and guest of the pod. I think he I think he signed up to hear us talk about Near Dark last month. I know that's one of his favorite films. Nice. Um, Kyler McFarland. I would have just sent it to you, Diego. You could have asked. Um, <laughs> Chris Moisey, uh, Zoid Wheeler, Nico Crever, Jonathan Gons- Gonslaves, Brandon Garcia, Cosmic Surfin, cool name, cool. Michael Burke, Drew Hunter, Martin Worrell, Wesley Eddings, Buck Bell, Wes Keaton, Poonan, Oren Lehman, James McDermott, oh my God, Lakota Crawford. Simon Ostick, who upgraded his $5 a month to actually to an annual subscription, which is something people can do if they don't nice. know that. Uh, so he's paid for a full year up front, thanks to, I, to Simon. Um, same, actually, with Edward. Edward upgraded from $5 a month to actually $10 a month for the year. Holy shit. Thank you, Edward. Thank you, Edward. Um, we're still going, by the way. B. Watkins, Kyle Kimbrough, Marmon, Sid Beretta, uh, William Highland, Kyland Bycroft, 
okay, hold on. We're still going here. <laughs> Angus Shaw, Alex Madalena. I tricked you there. Malia Obama. I don't think that that's true, but I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate you pretending for us. Um, Martin Bernabe and Joel Halverson. Damn. Thanks so much. Crazy you, big month. Spooktober is always usually pretty big for us, uh, but thanks. It's they crazy. Thanks so much to all of you. Hope you guys enjoyed all those bonus episodes, especially the Spooktober ones. We had a lot of them. We had like three of them last month. So yeah, I uh, hope you guys are enjoying all of those horror movie talks, but we're moving on. We're moving on. Um, that's the one plug um, for the week obviously it's the Patreon the other plug is as always is uh, Apple Podcasts if you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts scroll down to the very bottom give us a good old rating and review down there helps us uh, climb the ranks over at iTunes and find new listeners and actually like 10 of you decided to just review us uh, last week uh, which was crazy sometimes I check and you guys had some very positive things to say so uh, just so you know I do read those so thanks it's very much appreciated uh, and the last plug is um, merch. If you guys like the uh, poster art that local horror artist Trevor Henderson uh, did for the podcast, we actually had him on as a guest again last month. He was a lot of fun talking about Halloween movies with. Um, if you like the art he did for us, you can find it uh, in a link in the description. You can put it on basically anything, uh, a shirt, a hoodie, a notebook, a pillow, a mask, anything you can think of, you can probably put it on. Um, so again, link in the description or podcast com if that interests you at all but holy crap what an intro uh <laughs> i'm grateful but uh but yeah holy crap um <laughs> we are back welcome to another week I, as always i am your host josh lewis and joining me also as always is my co-host jamie miller welcome back everybody welcome i think two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks would have heard from us and we would have that's when we would have had uh artist for the pod trevor henderson on the show we were talking about um the midnight hour from 1985 (laughs) and the lady in white from 1988 two sort of uh children's autumn nostalgic fall kind of horror films in different ways midnight hour has more of that halloween party vibe yeah Uh, the makeup effects work was done by the team who did thriller that's the kind of vibe it's going for whereas Lady in White has more of this more Spielbergian quality to the children's aspect that gets really dark and ghostly as the uh, sort of reveals make themselves and it becomes a story about a child a child realizing that there's a child murderer in his town and uh, Trevor was really fun to talk about with those and also worth noting that uh, Frank uh, Lalogia, who directed Lady in White, he uh, he listened to the show and he really enjoyed it, and he had me send it to him. So, yeah. uh, Frank, thanks for listening. I think we gained a new listener. Yeah, your um, movie's awesome, Frank. <laughs> yeah, we liked it a lot. Um, and then last week for the bonus listeners over on the Patreon exclusively, we did your guys's patron voted episode, which I'm sure most of you know by now, but patrons once every two months, we get you guys to pick the double feature and vote which one that you guys want to hear us talk about the most. And so for the Halloween episode, the horror double feature that won the, the poll was phantasm 1979 and phenomena. 1985 Dario Argento once again two sort of uh, uh, Italian horror stylized films with surreal sex and death violence but experienced by uh, leading uh, role child characters which kind of added a a new level of perversity to those sequences (laughs) which you know uh, it's not like they weren't perverse to begin with but it was a lot of fun talking about that and patron Nick Ferguson was the one who nominated that so thanks to uh, him for picking that. But that was the big Halloween spooktober climax. That was the end of it. And as always, when we finish up our month of horror, we gotta, we gotta, uh, we gotta relax. We gotta unload. Put with those fedoras on. 
Yeah, we got to unload with a, a month of crime. <laughs> Entering November, we uh, have a very special guest joining us, a returning guest. Um, he is a freelance film critic and writer and editor and historian. He's written for places like the New York Times, Vulture, Flavorwire, Village Voice, Vice, Slate, so many places I can't even name them all. Uh, and he also, last time he was on this show, he was working on a book about uh, New York cities and the movies that made it. And we had a lot of fun talking with him, but that book is done and it's called fun city cinema. And he is here to, uh, I think, tell us a little bit about that journey and also share with us some films he discovered while he was making that, which he was kind of doing last time he was here as well. But that guest is Jason Bailey. Jason, how are you doing? Josh, Jamie, thank you for having me back, man. I really appreciate it. It's good. Good. Good to kick off November with you. Oh, yes, yeah. no, there was the, there was no one uh, more uh, perfect when I was looking for November guests because I was like, he just finished uh, a book about New York City films, and there are is no place where they have filmed more crime films. Yeah. Can I, I can I imagine? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and and last time you were on, you brought with you Night of the Juggler and Nighthawks. So we talked yep. about kind of like a like a, a film that was really hard to find, and then you know more of like one of the stranger, you know, Stallone. <laughs> Uh, uh, crime films out of New York. Uh, but, you know, uh, what have you brought with you this week, Jason? So this week uh, I have a sort of decade-spanning uh, noir and, and neo-noir pairing. Uh, and it's fascinating that it, the last four movies you've talked about have all sort of been uh, <laughs> films with child protagonists. Because We, we thought about this too. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're just going to keep that train right on rolling. We did not coordinate um, any of this. This was like One was picked by another guest way at a different time, and the other one was voted by the patrons who would have had no idea what the other two yeah. pairings were. So the stars are alive. Total happenstance. Three weeks of, yeah. ch- of, of children in danger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, so the, the first film, the, the sort of older of the two, the, the classic noir, if you will, is uh, The Window from 1949, directed by Ted Tatzlaff. Uh, and then our the second half of the double is uh, Perfect Strangers, also known as Blind Alley, directed by the one and only New York City sleazemeister, uh, Mr. Larry Cohen. Woo. Um, and I selected this pairing just because, you, you know, one of the things that I that I enjoyed when I was working on the book, which covers 100 years of New York City movies, like it starts That's in insane. 1920 and goes to 2020. So awesome. One of the things that I really dug was seeing films separated by decades that explored similar themes that had similar stories even um, you know, and sometimes we're even dwelling in similar neighborhoods, but of course, styles of film had changed, uh, permissiveness of what could be on film had changed, and neighborhoods that they were shot in had changed. And so in sort of thinking about that and thinking about noir, I landed on this pairing because it's both, it's basically the same story. It's a story about a small child in New York who witnesses a murder and is then in grave danger because of that. Um, but we, you know, we see it in, again, two very different styles and two very different approaches to that material. Yeah. Yeah. No, ab- absolutely. I, I, uh, I, I was so shocked that I was like, another child is, uh, <laughs> is, is going to get messed up. But yeah. And also just to, again, as you mentioned, like, you know, very 
similar premises, but there couldn't be anything further from this sort of like 1949 directed by, you know, someone who had worked as a cinematographer for Hitchcock and, you know, uh, from a story that, you know, also uh, by Cornell Woolrich, who, you know, Mm -hmm. did, uh, who wrote Rear Window. So like to see that, you know, filmmakers like that take on this story and then to see like, you know, legend, Sleazoid's legend of the show, Larry Cohen, you know, do his own spin on like something different. You could not get like more polar opposite stylizations. Uh, But one thing is consistent. And uh, that is that New York looks disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm excited to talk about a lot. This is, this is the New York uh, has garbage everywhere. Double feature. Um, (laughs) And I'm excited to talk about that. So let's do it. Let's jump into it. Let's start off here with the window. Hairbrush to you. Please, mom. Tommy. Well, with all the stories you tell us, no wonder you have nightmares. Nightmares? Yes, nightmares. You've had a bad dream. You're soaking wet. Now go on and go back to bed. But, Mom... And go to sleep like a good boy. All right, we are talking about The Window, the 1949 American suspense film, noir film, directed, as Jason mentioned, by one Ted Tetzlaff, um, and also based on a short story called uh, The Boy Who Cried Murder by uh, Cornell Woolrich, who made Great you... title. Why would you change that title to something <laughs> as, the as window. bland as The Window? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did, 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 you, did you hear the other title for the short story when it was reprinted? No. It was called Fire Escape. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Guys. <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, um, but for for anyone who who hasn't seen the window, it is uh, a very it, it stars Bobby Driscoll as uh, as this little boy named Tommy, who is this very imaginative young boy living in New York, who frequently makes things up to a lot of the kids around him, a lot of the adults, and his parents to try to uh, presumably just try to like heighten the experience of, you know, uh, living in the lower East side surrounded by uh, garbage and rundown uh, condemned buildings everywhere and things. So you can, you can, you can tell why this kid, you know, wishes he was kind of in a Western adventure story or what, <laughs> or wishes why he was in, you know, some sort of crime story, but everyone knows him as the local kid who kind of makes shit up. Um, and as a result, you know, when he witnesses a murder, as is aptly sort of described by the title of Cornell Woolrich's story, um, you know, no one believes him. His parents don't believe him. He goes to the police. The police don't believe him. Um, and it becomes a really scary movie, actually, just about the the lack of uh, control and autonomy that a child um, has in the world. <laughs> Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. because it is just this kid straight up saying what we know to be the truth that someone was murdered and he's in danger and every single adult, uh, you know, straight up dismissing him. Um, and it, you, un- you understand kind of why on some level, but the sort of pain and suspense of the film a lot of the time does become, you know, the fact that, you know, th- th- why is this kid having so much trouble just being helped? He's screaming at the top of his lungs. Someone help this right. child. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And like uh, and- the the they use a lot of different things to complicate 
his situation. Like, for instance, when he starts, you know, he sees the murder and he starts telling his folks about it and all of that. They instantly think that he's, you know, full of shit because he's the liar. But then they even start kind of weighing the... Uh, uh, the relationships they have with each other as like a tool to, to manipulate him a little bit. Like the father at one point says like, you don't want me to be, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like you don't want me to be embarrassed uh, for you to be my son. If everyone thinks that you're a liar and you know, and all of this. And it's just yeah. like a really devastating moment because this kid has nowhere else to go. He even has a line, I think that says pretty much outright that, that he just has nowhere to go because he's a child. And you would hope yeah, you, that you, you go to the adults, you go to your parents. They're the people who yeah. are supposed to, you know, get you out of a situation like this. And for them to not <laughs> mm-hmm. only not believe you, but then to like pretty much kind of put their your relationship with them on the table as something that could be destroyed because of this right. uh, quote unquote lie uh, is really heavy, especially for a, like, I don't know, he's like eight or nine, ten at the most. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it, it's wild. And that's just one example. Right. Well, I mean, one of the things that it is really striking to watch just from just from the perspective of like a parent, which I am, Mm -hmm. I have I have a I have a daughter who's about this kid's age. And it is wild to me how I mean, a major sort of plot development hinges on the notion, which no one which I'm sure was the case at the time where people would just leave their little ass kid home alone all night by themselves. <laughs> I was just, yep. I like, I cannot imagine like telling my, my eight year old, like, all right, kid, see you in the morning, uh, lock the door. Don't open it. Like that part blew my mind. But you know, again, this is a time when our relationships with children and the, the sort of, like you said, the autonomy, or at least the way we thought about children was very different. And movies reflected that like, you know, this is this is a period when movies were not hesitant to put children in peril, like serious <laughs> peril. Yeah. Um, and there's a scene in the back where um, where the 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 murderers have him in the back of a cab, and he's screaming Ooh. and hooting and hollering when they just fucking clock this kid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's a jolt. Like it. I mean, it's just shocking to see in a movie, even from villains like villains nowadays, you still don't see a lot of kids getting punched in the <laughs> face Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. they knock him out. And it's, it was a jolt like sort of viscerally. Yeah. But then so- to, to the effect of the movie, it's also a jolt intellectually because like, Oh shit, these people are capable of anything, you know? Right. Yeah, because that like that where if if they're gonna if they're willing to do that they can't have many boundaries. That's the thing. Exactly. And and then exactly. there's also in that scene too. I loved that that sequence. Uh, they have the cop come up too, and oh, you know shit. He's, <laughs> the, Bobby's just screaming at the top of his lungs, just like like these aren't my parents. Uh, help me like this is a this is a problem i'm being kidnapped here and the guy just you know he he brushes it off because they play as the parents and they say like oh he's just a liar he's a storyteller basically saying what his parents have been telling him which is kind of funny in a way too um and Mm -hmm. and then when he when they drive off also, th- that cab driver needs to be questioned as well. But anyway, uh, <laughs> when, when, they, uh, when they drive off, he just has this one line where he just goes, they're not my parents. And it kind of uh, it starts to distance the, the audio a little bit from the cop. And it really mm-hmm. just kind of just terrified me. Like, it, it's such a vulnerable position that he's in. He has just he, he can't do anything. He's eight. Like, yeah. even if he wanted to try to physically overpower them, he's incapable yeah. of it. So, 
Yeah, it's yeah. that that scene was terrifying, really scary. I'd also like to shout out, yeah, one of NYPD's finest there. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I, I wrote the line down because I was because the, the, the dad says, oh, he's just hooting and hollering because he's going to because we're going to beat his ass when we get home or whatever he says. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. the cop replies and I, I, I ran it back so I could jot this down. The cop says, and I quote. A good licking never hurt anybody, boy. My old man used to give me enough of them when I was a kid. Okay, thanks, officer. Thank you so much <laughs> yeah, for, for, for that real. insight. That's, yeah, and when, then, when, when that moment hits, that's when the perversity of the film really hit for me, and it, it kind yeah. of ran through some of, in retrospect, some of the other stuff of it. Because early on, it is it is it is understandable that the parents won't listen to him because the kid oh, yeah. was a scene earlier. He was telling right. the dad this like grand story about how he had like killed mobsters in the street or something. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. With a yeah, gun and, he and, found. And his dad is like, yeah, okay, shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, so as soon as he tells them that he's seen this murder and also that he sees the murder at night and he jolts him awake from his bed and they're like, you know, you just had a nightmare. And you know, so th- there's something understandable about the way that they, you know, they aren't listening to him, but at a certain point, <laughs> yes. you know, he insists he, he, <laughs> he, he, he's already in trouble. You know, he's mm-hmm. got nothing to benefit from keeping up the lie anymore. And mm-hmm. they 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 can't, you know, they, they keep getting more and more frustrated with him and locking him in his room and freaking out about it. And then it really clicked for me as soon as the kidnappers started using that image to their advantage. It got really sad and scary because mm-hmm. the fact that. Again, he, they're punching him unconscious in the back of a cab. The cabbie can see that. The cabbie can hear that. Yeah. Uh, the, the the way that the camera is sort of like panning around uh, as they're playing like happy family to the cabbie. And mm-hmm. then the cop and and then the, the patrolman, you know, sort of like comes up and, you know, it, it's just it's those things where like, you know, for some reason, this kid's words don't mean as much as those people because they perform the right domestic look that they look like they yes. could be parents. Yeah. And because yeah. of that, you know, you can literally ignore the, you know, the, the spine shivering screams of little mm-hmm. Bobby Driscoll. And you're like, there's something wrong with this fucking kid. Even if those were his parents, those parents are going to murder him. He's fucking terrified. Yeah. yeah that, that's the thing. Yeah. Like even, even if they were, they, you need to rip them from their arms because they are <laughs> unsuited to be, to be parents. And also I found it so like almost uh, darkly humorous, but it, uh, it's, it might even be the scene after that. That same cop talks to the father that realizes that Bobby isn't in the room anymore. And he's yes. like, hey, my son's missing. Have you seen him? And nothing in the cop's head clicks that he just witnessed the kid <laughs> screaming, yeah. these aren't my parents, help me. Yeah. And, it, and, yeah. and he's just like, oh, we'll find him. Don't worry about it. He's probably just some stupid missing kid that ran away. And it, it's yeah. like, it's just scene after scene with, uh, with just absolutely dumbass adults. <laughs> yeah, yes. and that that, yes. that 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 line that the cop gets to when the father comes up to him is uh kids do funny things. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jesus. kids are kids. Yeah. Oh yeah, God. no, co- the cops don't come off looking well through much of the movie. In fact, I do love how no. <laughs> the one the one cop that comes to investigate the tip does like a completely illegal search, like completely lies yes. <laughs> about who he is or what he's doing there. Yeah. It's like I don't think this is by the book, officer. <laughs> I also love the little like they do all these subtle little twists throughout it that keep you on your toes because you mm. know the story itself is pretty simplistic but there's two moments uh there's more but there's two specific moments I'm thinking of uh one is where he 
the the father actually comes home when Bobby decides he's going to uh, run away and uh, right. so that he can like I think it's so that he can gather more proof or something. But he packs his bags and he writes them a little note or whatever. And then uh, do- uh, somebody comes through the doorway and it's just completely shadowed. And you're like, oh my god, the neighbor's here. And then the light comes on. Mm-hmm. And it's just the dad, and he gives. And and what it is, it's like a sense of relief. But then they instantly turn that into more uh, kind of nail biting, situ- uh, nail biting situation because then he locks the kid in the, the fucking room. Yeah. So he can't go anywhere. So it's this like constant, just. Uh, back and forth, like relief and then tension, relief and tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it very much captures this idea of like your safety and existence relies entirely on other people. Right. right. Yes. Um, you know, yeah. you, you, you have, you have no sense of, you know, that you can just decide to do something or that, you know, you can say something and people will take it at face value. Um, you know, so th- this idea that, you know, um, this kid is like, you know, has this very natural instinct to be there's killers upstairs. I'm home alone. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that very natural instinct is like, you know, turned against him because, you know, that he just looks like a kid who's misbehaving and he's who's running away from home. And, you know, the home is supposed to be this safe place. Why would he go out into the, the dirty streets? Yeah. It you must know, be like the that kid's fault. That, you know, that doesn't make sense. Um, and they do but that in, thing where in, they leave the note. In this specific context, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And they do that thing where he leaves the note where he goes, P.S., by the way, what I've said about the neighbors is completely true. And so when they have the, the neighbor come in and before he even messes with Bobby, uh, he sees the note and rips only that part of it off so that it looks yeah. like he just yeah. ran away, which is just another great kind of tension-filled moment. Nice moment, yeah. Um, and then the other one I was going to talk about was just when, what you guys were saying, it was when he comes, the the officer comes in to do the inspection as like a, as an estimator of some kind. And yeah, they have kind of a, a cool moment where you think, oh shit, that he might actually investigate these people because he sees a stain mm-hmm. on the floor. And then you're like, awesome. There's no way that they'd have like actual leak marks on the ceiling to signify that it's a leak, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> they do and so you're just kind of like you know another snap you're like ah shit they they yeah. can't get that this time. that moment made me laugh so hard because yeah. that is that is literally killers being able to get away with blood stains on their floor because their apartment is shitty <laughs> yes yeah it's Welcome such a to the funny, Lower East Side, everybody. That's what <laughs> it, it literally. I was like, dude, if they did that in any other, you know, like uh, if they upgraded their apartment one level, they would not have gotten away with that murder as easily <laughs> right. as they did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh shit! <laughs> also, well, I, I did. I did want to mention just uh, just a little bit of context if if uh, that I one of the reasons I liked this movie so much and responded to it so much when I was writing the book when I was doing the research was because this was a rare sort of New York movie of the period that was actually shot entirely in New York. Um, that's the, yeah, I that's, read that. Oh, that's that's cool. the real Lower East Side. You know, that's uh, all the studio stuff was done on the Pathé Studios on the Upper East Side. Um, it was made after the shooting, but before the release of The Naked City, which is one of the the books, one of the movies we really get into in the book because that was sort of it, one of its gimmicks when it came out was that it was the first motion picture in like you know thirty forty years that had been shot major motion picture shot entirely in New York City. 
But a lot of these, you know, sort of B-movie noirs, because they were working on lower budgets and because, you know, they had these directors who had been sort of inspired by Italian neorealism and stuff like that, they really went to the extra effort to try to at least shoot parts of their New York movies in New York, which is why you've got a lot of great, you know, New York uh, location photography and like Kiss of Death and Force of Evil and The Dark Corner and and movies like that. Um as opposed to like a, a, a pricier movie, like the sort of a movie version of this, which would be the aforementioned rear window from a few years later, which is a terrific movie, but shot entirely on a soundstage in Los Angeles, you know, right. Hitch did, Hitch did not yeah. try to find that location in New York city. Um, yeah. So I think that, you know, it's, it becomes a cliche when you talk about it, or at least as much as I have, but I, you know, that, that sense of atmosphere, that, that sense of authenticity that you get from those scenes where the kids are really playing out on the streets of New York. And it's clearly the actual streets of New York and not some like, you know, shitty backlot version of a New York city block. Yeah, uh, I think I think really does sort of it, it gives the movie an authenticity and sort of grounds it in a realism that matters when you're trying to build this kind of suspense in a story like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I I, I, I agree. I I loved the like the, the the opening kind of montage of just yes. like the kid playing in like the rundown building, and like at, at first you're kind of wondering what kind of um, movie that you're in because like <laughs> yeah. you know you're seeing these Lower East Side boarded up buildings. There's trash everywhere. The cars and people running every which way, and you find Tommy kind of like asleep in this like you know, this, again, this condemned apartment building right. holding on to a gun and just the image of a 10 year old gun, a uh, 10 year old with a gun <laughs> is just a great image in, in, in general. But then, you know, it turns out that he's, you know, it's a toy gun and he's shooting the other kids and he's just playing. Um, but you know, they're using this rundown building as like a jungle gym and he's, mm-hmm. yeah, he's running on the rooftops and the fire escape ladders. And, you know, he's gambling with the other kids to get their money and stuff like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's something so interesting about, um, that like the reason he is able to kind of survive this situation. And the reason he even observes this murder in the first place is because, you know, he, he's pretty comfortable on the streets, um, right. in, in the kind of underbelly and underworld that these criminals might be hanging out in. And I love that they eventually apply that into the climax of the film where he actually like bests them in a, who can right. survive a, a condemned building because the kid, <laughs> yeah. he knows it, you know, he, it, it's just, it's the kind of thing that he sees all around him. And, yep. you know, it, there's an interesting combination of, you know, the way that they shoot it is for, you know, the, the, it's a crumbling brick and rusty ladders and they, they, they want to show it to you that it's kind of, uh, uh, dirty and it's claustrophobic in a way, but you know, it, it also makes sense of, you know, the reason that this kid has the imagination that he has in the first place. And you sure. watch this kid playing yeah. on this rooftop and you're like, yeah, I mean, th- this kid just, he really wants to be a cowboy. Mm, (laughs) and he makes up a lie to all of his friends about how his dad actually bought a ranch and he's going to use the money he won from them to uh, go buy a horse and uh, go, go, go uh, uh, in a dated uh, line, go (laughs) kill a bunch of indigenous folks off the ranch before he goes and takes it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You know, that's, Um, I mean, that's, that's a kid thing. Like whatever kind of childhood you have, you want to live somewhere else. You know, yeah. if and if, if you know, if you grow up on a ranch, then all you want to do is move to a big city. But if like you live <laughs> in a big city, all you want is, yeah, is to be a cowboy. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, and then, and then I love to that, like, um, you know, like there's some really tense moments in here and, you know, obviously, uh, Tetzloff who, you know, was a cinematographer for a very long time and shot thrillers and he shot, it was, it was notorious that he did right for Hitchcock. I right. think that was the one that he did, which is so, a beautiful yeah. movie, of course. Um, you can tell that he, you know, he brings a little bit of that sense of style to it. But one thing that I really loved was how, when the kid is, you know, he, he can't sleep because he's not comfortable in his own bed. He's more comfortable in the fire escape. That's a New mm-hmm. Yorker right there. Yes, um, it is. And, and, and how, how flat the actual like death sequences there's no like music or anything right, there's yeah. no mm-hmm. there's nothing to it he literally just looks inside of a window you get this really nice sort of like shadowy image of like the light just barely touching his eyes while he looks in you just see a body fall with blood and you see some scissors hit the floor and he you know he realizes very bluntly that oh my god like seeing a murder is you know not as um uh, you know uh, cinematic or as exciting as i imagined um it's actually just like kind of gross Runt. yeah mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> um and yeah immediately runs inside and is shouting at his parents and everything like that and it yeah it's i i thought that there was something really interesting in the way that it applies both the um the location work to this kid's like psychology and how that psychology mm-hmm. would have developed out of the place that he was in it makes a huge difference when you actually see these surroundings that he's in uh, i to like get that i like the way that they shoot his uh perspective at least most throughout most of the film because they do mm. have a lot of like uh, the camera at a lower angle almost at bobby's yeah. height like almost so <laughs> yeah. that you kind of the, the, just the, get there, there's a shot where the mother's doing laundry and you just see like her legs and it's like framed low because like you know she she's talking to him it should be like a shot reverse shot of equals but like right. literally you just see like her legs <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and the same thing happens when uh it re- it's revealed that it is uh his dad not the neighbor that comes through the darkness but at first mm. it's like even when he turns on the lights, the the camera is lower, and you see him pretty much take up the whole screen, and Bobby's only taking up half. Um, yeah, and I liked those those moments. Those were really cool. No, really good way of good, showing that perspective. Very good point. Yeah, and that's something that even like that Spielberg did in ET. You know, like there's oh, yeah. a lot of that that same sort of lower photography to put you in that that kid's perspective. One other thing that I that I wanted to mention when you talked about you know him him looking through the uh, the the titular window, if you will, um, <laughs> to see the murder. Like that was actually something that was happening. That there are a lot of movies of this period where where we're seeing murders through windows like the opening murder in the naked city is through we view it you know the camera through an open window um the assault that's witnessed by the protagonist in uh, killer's kiss is kind of through an open window and i think that sort of becomes one of the the sort of tropes of of the urban thriller because in new york everyone is just packed into this tight confined space like everyone's just yeah. sort of on top of each other and like peeking you have, inside someone else's life kind of thing absolutely at their sort of maybe not best moments you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, and then especially with stories like these that are set in the summertime, you know, and, and the first time I saw it, you know, obviously I'd seen Rear Window first, even though it came out later. Uh, and Rear Window is one of my favorite movies. And I was struck not only by the, the the similarity in story, but to the fact that like the first time I'd ever seen people sleeping on a fire escape was in Rear Window. There's that couple yeah. that yeah. sleeps sleeps out there, too. And I'm just like, oh, that must be like, you know, a New York City pre-air conditioning just sort of thing that you did to try to cool off. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's interesting to compare it to Rear Window because obviously it's, you know, it's written um, by the same um, writer. And mm-hmm. there's there's something about how in Rear Window you kind of get swept up once again in the uh, the, the, the psychology of, of Jimmy Stewart's character as he's, yep. you know, actually watching and he's kind of thrilled by the watching in a way. And this mm-hmm. I found interesting in as a kind of reversal or because it's partially a test run where like the kid is, you know, he's he, he's intrigued by the outside world around around him, which we already mentioned, which is something that, you know, which is what gets him in trouble and being able to see this stuff in the first place. But there, there is a twist on it in the sense that, you know, Jimmy Stewart finds it engaging and the mystery engaging for a lot longer because of the safety of kind of like the distance that that he, that he has and the way that the camera is kind of held at a distance for a lot of this. There's something really uh, threatening about the, the lack of safety and distance that he has here. Like the murderers, he knows he goes out his window, he goes up a, you know, uh, a ladder and they're right there. And that like terrifies him, uh, you know, completely. And he can't get anyone to understand that or, or believe him in any way. Cause even in rear window, you know, he's trying to convince other people of what he's seen as well. And they won't, but there's something more existentially terrifying, uh, just being from a kid's perspective and, and, you know, that, you know, that this kid, no matter how hard he tries, um, and, you know, credit to the child performer, Bobby Driscoll, like, you know, there's some Mm -hmm. really horrifyingly sad lines that he get he gets to deliver Mm -hmm. where he's, he talks to the dad and he's like, you know, if you see a thing with your own eyes, it can't be a dream, right? Or something like that. Yeah. And, 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 and because his parents are, being like you had a nightmare you know i've i've had dreams you know where the place was on fire and i woke up and i had to get someone to convince me i wasn't on fire but i wasn't and he's just like and you know they they keep pressuring him to not tell this story um and yeah it's really disheartening um for for this child and it's really painful and like at least like say what you will it's like at least Stuart had grace kelly as support, you know what I mean. <laughs> this kid's got nobody. There's not. He, he couldn't have the the little like nine year old girl neighbor come over and be like, "We're gonna solve the mystery together." He's just on his own. <laughs> He's just completely yeah. on his own. This this poor little guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, well yeah. no, and and that that sense, you know, that sort of sympathy for him. You're right. Is in a lot of the line readings, but also in the physicality of the thing. I I I the way he flinches when the lady upstairs tried tries to muss his hair at that one point when she's like oh, when yeah. she's making nice and he like absolutely jerks away from her it's really it's it's a hell of a moment from that and then and then the mother sees that as something disrespectful when he's just scared of a murderer so 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 she's all like wow you've just absolutely embarrassed me and and you're not gonna eat dinner or lunch until you apologize basically they they basically starve him as discipline which is an interesting tactic i guess an old school that that one again (laughs) yeah that that one has fallen away as well yes (laughs) Luckily, <laughs> yeah. But uh, but yeah, just the the complications with that too. Like, of course, he'd be you know taken aback by a murderer trying to touch him. The like mm-hmm. six hours after he saw the murder, but because of the you know the politics of of the society and uh, just the relationship, the mother and son relationship to the neighbor, you know, the mom sees it as something bad. So. I loved all those complications too. Really well, and, smart. And, 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 and they have to maintain some sort of, you know, some sense of, again, this sort of image of domesticity a little bit as well, where like, right. you know, the, the kid was trying to get the police involved and that's a, you know, that, so that that's, you know, something that the mother feels really bad about and immediately takes him upstairs to apologize. Right. And yeah, that, that it really is a horrifying 
moment. And he's when, screaming when she, at her like they're gonna kill me because they'll know yeah. that I said something, and we know yeah. that that's mm-hmm. true. <laughs> yeah, so you, we're you, like, you just you just, you just ratted on me, mom, and now they're gonna kill me. <laughs> you and snitch. then cut <laughs> snitches cut. get stitches, ma. <laughs> <laughs> cut to cut to him in his bed, and uh, he can hear the footsteps of the mm-hmm. the, the 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 murderers upstairs like pacing. That like, transition you was know, so good. Yeah. Yeah. There are, there are some really nice little like uh you know little formal touches like that like like the the huge tilt from his bed to the ceiling where you can hear the footsteps and everything like that. There's also a great sequence where uh, he's trapped in the room and the killers are trying to break in and there's a mm-hmm. part where he is trying to uh you know evade her using a flashlight as like a spotlight and he's doing like little moves and rolls through his room trying to hide <laughs> in the shadows and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. There's a really good, it's almost, uh, I mean, it, it's got a darkness and kind of a scariness to it, but it, it's played almost comedically in a way where uh, it's when they get to the abandoned building and, you know, it's kind of the chase sequence between the the murderers and Bobby. And um, at one point he, he gets to this like upper floor and finds a, a closet to hide in and he gets in the closet, closes the door. And when he's hiding, the, the male neighbor comes by and starts to try to get in. And Bobby turns around and sees the dead body that they kept there uh, from yeah. the scene before. Mm-hmm. And he's so terrified that he screams at the top of his lungs and hits the door open, which causes the guy to actually get backed up. And so he can <laughs> escape. And it's, and yeah. it's funny because it's, I I mean, you know, he's he's seen a dead body and that's horrifying for a child. But then it also plays like it's his motivation to get the hell out of there and escape from them. So I, right. I thought that that was uh, both funny and uh, a good way of bringing back kind of the body and putting it in front of him to really have a very adult moment. Yeah, no, there's there's a lot of really great little, um, you know, little scary uh, details like that that are that are done with the the camera work. One of my favorites was um, the great shot of him realizing that he's going to be completely home alone. His dad's going to work that night. His his mother's taking the bus, and it's done in this great shot where he is looking out his window, and he sees the parents getting on the bus from a distance, and he's slowly starting to like feel things are sort of encroaching around him and that Mm. the murderers are going to come and get him any second. And what does the camera do at that exact moment? It pans up to the murderers looking out their window, also (laughs) watching the parents leave. Yeah. Oh, so good. (laughs) Um, I also really liked, um, the, uh, they have to, you know, obviously because he's like eight or nine, they, they make him pretty naive in certain uh, scenes. And one of the great moments is when he initially goes to the police station and he's just telling them about the story and, and he's doing it with like excitement and and concern. And uh, and, and the, the cop that's uh, on the other side of the table responding to him is just mocking him, like completely just sarcastically <laughs> responding to him. And Bobby doesn't see that because he's eight yeah. and can't read it. Yeah. <laughs> so he keeps like, like just engaging and, and telling the story as if the cop is really listening to him. And there's, you know, it, it is, I like, there is a bit of a, a comedic beat to that, of course, but um, yeah. there's also just another sense of desperation that you feel because it's just like, oh, Bobby, you don't even get that they're not listening to you because you're a child. <laughs> and it's just, yeah. it's very frustrating and it's it's great. I can tell you from experience that eight-year-olds do not, they don't get sarcasm. They just, I keep trying <laughs> and trying. <laughs> and I, this kid's going to pick it up one day. I don't know. 
<laughs> no, there, there, there's a lot of really great stuff with with, with Bobby. E- even before he goes into the actual uh, detective's office and he just goes into the police station up front, he literally can't even like see over yes. the desk at the guy <laughs> to the front right. thing. Yes. I thought that was so funny. And the guy was like, why is this kid talking? Like, I, I see little hands and eyes. And, yeah. He also <laughs> tells him the whole story. And then the, sec- the secretary dude's just like, yeah, kid, you want the detectives over there. I can't do like anything for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and and, and i i don't know much about bobby Driscoll because the only other thing i've seen him in was was peter pan but from what i understand yeah. he was already with um he was like a disney star before this yeah right? he was no in, yeah. there's in like song a, of the south there's like a big credit like a big ornate special thanks to walt disney studios for loading for lending bobby. us his child yes. yeah yes <laughs> it, it felt a little oogie, yes, honestly. But yeah, apparently so. I mean, he's you know, they they had he was a contract player over there and you know and and got got uh loaned out for this. And I'm a, sure and I'm sure a handsome profit to 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 Mr. Disney because that was how those deals tended to work. Yeah, yeah. He had a he also had a tragic end, apparently. I I looked him really? up after because yeah, because I, I saw that he did Peter Pan and that he actually was the voice of Peter Pan and I grew up watching that, so I was just like, Oh, sure. that's cool. I've actually seen him do something before. Um and then I just went to his Wikipedia and uh like apparently he passed away when he was thirty years old and they found him in an abandoned warehouse, like with alcohol around him and and uh oh. like religious pamphlets and stuff and uh, it, and apparently he, it, it's been, I think rectified now, but he was buried in like an unmarked grave and just really, really sad, sad stuff. Yeah. Um, cause, cause uh, originally they found him and couldn't identify him. Right. Yeah. He didn't have any ID on him. That's right. So yeah. Even yeah. though they were looking at like a very famous child star <laughs> who was just, you know, like 30 now. Which probably says something about his condition, unfortunately. But yeah, that that was that was unfortunate to read, especially after such a uh, yeah watching this film because I really loved this movie. So yeah, that sad ending, unfortunately, to Bobby. Mm-hmm. But no, he he gives a really good um, performance in this. I mean, it's, yeah. it's oh, kind yeah, of a it's hard great. thing to base, you know, like like your a movie like this like hinges on his performance working. Oh, totally, yes, a hundred percent. He's in every single scene. He's the entire anchor to this thing. Yeah, so you 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 have to buy both kind of like the innocence and also the the regret about the lying too. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. Uh, I'm never gonna tell a fucking story ever again <laughs> yeah. kind of aspect of this. Like I can't believe what yeah. the hell I'm going through just because like I had dreams um, <laughs> and uh, made stuff up sometimes. Um, but but he's also very uh, the way that they depict him too. He's very resourceful, which I mm-hmm. which I like as well. Um, you know, again, it's it's a lot of like kind of the the logistics of how a kid could get out of a scenario like this and i i like when they you know have him doing things like turning the hanger into a lock pick and oh right, yeah you know, well, no you things really like that yeah you pinpoint it. it's that idea of the urban playground at the beginning like, like that's why yeah. that sequence is so important to set that up the idea that you know if this were a suburban kid then he would know all of the alleys and and you know shortcuts through the neighborhood and just instead he knows where they are in like the, the, the abandoned buildings and places like that. You know, it's, it's, you get to know the environment and, and that sequence I think is really key to set that up so that we buy all that stuff later. So he doesn't just yeah. suddenly seem like a little MacGyver or something. I also like that it, it still turns it into a tension filled 
moment because at first you're like, okay, he's going to get the keys, going to get out of there. The girl's looking at him through the window and then the male mm-hmm. neighbor steps up and he actually puts mm-hmm. the key inside the hangar <laughs> yeah. so that it, Bobby can unlock the door and scare the shit out of him. Um, and it's mm-hmm. like, uh, it, just another thing I guess I was talking about previously where it's just that like tension, relief, tension, relief. And it does it yep. throughout the entire hour and a half. Or I guess, yeah. I don't know, how, how long was this actually? Like 80 minutes? I think it's, it's not even. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like, like 70 minutes. minutes. 73, 77 I think, or something. something like that. Yeah, nice, yeah. nice yeah. tight yeah. B movie. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, always appreciate that. And also uh, speaking but yeah, no, of... I, I, I like the scene you were talking about too, Jamie, where uh, he, he hands him the key and, uh, you know, and it's this very, you know, scary moment where like the, you know, the, the kid is only getting through the door because the bad guy is helping him get through the door. Yeah. <laughs> but I love that when he gets through and he kind of hides in the corner and then the kid sees him and he like freezes and there's this great push in on him as he realizes that it's not his dad this time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually is the Mr. Kellerson. And I love that that actor immediately pulls like a, you know, a very charming, like I'm an adult. Let's talk. I have power in this situation. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Let's just straighten things out. We don't need to hurt you. Yeah. We'll just, we'll just go, we'll just go to the police station and I'll, I'll turn myself in and we'll talk it through and we'll, you know, we'll get your stuff. Like the, the guy knows perfectly how to, you know, uh, convince this kid that he is not going to take him into an alley and try to murder him which right. um which is what he actually tries to do when which, he went uh, the, 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 literally the first shadowy alley that they walk mm-hmm. past he's like he's like this is good enough just throws <laughs> yeah. him in you get like garbage flying in the foreground yeah, yeah. and I, I also love that it once again fills it up with tension by doing it all off screen like they they bring him they rush him into the alleyway and then he kind of goes off camera and you you hear a scuffle and a couple screams mm-hmm. and stuff and then bobby gets loose and runs mm-hmm. off into the the opposite end of the camera um and so i thought that that was really cool and that's what i guess triggers that chase sequence on the rooftop and the uh um the abandoned building and, and all of that um but yeah that's great i just yeah it's very funny that he has <laughs> no patience he's like nope. in the middle of the street there are actually people walking on the sidewalk and shit and he's just <laughs> like oh well here's the first alleyway let's kill this kid yeah <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. Well, cause then, cause then, um, actually that's the part where they end up recapturing him and taking him into the cab because they say oh, we can't okay. take him to the police station. We didn't kill him. Well, so they, 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 we do the cab sequence that we were talking about where the killers pretend to be his parents. And because they, you know, they, uh, you know, have enough of a look that they could be his mother and father. The cop believes them. The cabbie believes them. They get all the way back to the apartment. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite things is that the killers are, you know, I guess maybe not the most smart. They probably could have just killed them right away, but they're smart (laughs) enough to be like, you know, if we want to kill a kid, more people are probably going to look into that than for this guy (laughs) that we killed upstairs. So let's, Mm -hmm. um, we got to make this look like an, like an accident. You said that he hung out on the fire escapes and that he's kind of precocious and he's imaginative and he likes to play around. So, um, what if I just put him unconscious sitting on top of a fire escape um, and that is like Let a really fall. horrifying moment. Yeah. <laughs> that where, scene where he, is scary as shit. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, like the, the kid is like half asleep. He's drifting and swaying back and mm-hmm. forth on the fire escape. And yeah, you're like, okay, this kid, if the wind blows one way, he's just, he's falling Done. down and dying right yeah. then and there. And they're going to be like, oh, he was climbing the fire escape. It was all an accident. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, that moment really, really um, scary. Probably the most scary, like actual, like sort of child in peril kind of sequence that actually takes yeah. takes place, which mm-hmm. then leads into the the good old uh, Hitchcock roof chase baby, where he yeah. he 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 wakes up and climbs up the ladder, and it becomes a whole rooftop turned into a rundown building. And there's a really great sequencing in like the way that they follow each other from room to room, and every door frame is like pitch black, and you don't know what it is you're going into you don't find mm-hmm. out till the shot is actually in the next room <laughs> you're yeah. like where am i right now <laughs> yeah it's a very disorienting sequence but in a in a great way it feels very maze like like uh you just cannot find your way through those abandoned buildings no well and, and the and the confidence with which uh, obviously the kid runs through it because it's his playground he knows it so right. well and yep. the killers yeah. don't definitely um, like that's that, that's what gives him kind of like the advantage in that sequence and also the kid like screaming for his dad while he's uh. in the building as the dad is getting in the cop car and running away and he's losing his oh. chance and oh yeah then, <laughs> then speaking of uh, just horrible cop work uh, oh yes what they have he's on the beam so so what happens is the they get to this like high beam place and and Bobby uh, crawls across it and then the the one guy uh, tries to but um, the the beam gets loose and I can't remember is it Bobby that loosens it or is it just gets loose and he falls I can't uh, he, he, he does slide a piece of wood or something. So I have yeah. a feeling that he he part he partially pushes it off. Okay, okay. And then so now Bobby is just stuck on this uh, high beam and has nowhere to go. And the cops all come in uh, to to save him because this is kind of like his last moment in peril. And and all they have is this net. And this looks like a very high distance, by the way. Like the height is insane. Um, yeah. And 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 you think like okay, well maybe this is the only equipment that they had at the time or whatever. But there's even a line of dialogue where the cops say, "We don't have time to get a ladder. <laughs> get a ladder. So in. just jump, kid, or something like that." And you're Here's like, "Are you He's fucking a- kidding me?" Yeah. <laughs> like after yeah. you watch this kid get kidnapped, like like you can't also maybe put forth a little more effort and get a fucking yeah. ladder. Like it, it was yeah. the funniest shit in the world. Um, but he's okay. He does the, do the jump, and I was a little nervous, honestly. I'm like, are they going to make the yeah. cops out to like break the kid's arm or something? They're that <laughs> incompetent. Uh, but luckily, he gets through, and it's it's a happy ending. But yeah, that that last moment with the cops made me laugh so hard, and just oh my god. It's- <clears throat> Yeah, because because I I think I think that they are supposed to be thinking that the building is in immediate collapse because of like right. that bit where the killer is like oh, running yeah, on the maybe, stairs yeah. and they literally like crumble underneath his feet. So they think the building is going to fall down and they don't have time. But the funny thing is, is they you know like that building has been up for however long it's already been up for. <laughs> Who fucking yeah. knows? And like you know, I don't even know that they saw the stairs collapse or anything like that. Like this right. kid is just clearly you know he's in trouble. And they're like, yeah, we got this tiny little like. Trampoline. Why don't you just see if Try you this. can make? There's a ladder down. somewhere, but we can't be bothered. Just <laughs> jump onto this. Here's what we got. We got a towel down here. We're gonna stretch this towel out uh, and just jump in the middle of the towel, kid. I just love well, that and, they easily could have. Go ahead, Josh. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was I was just gonna say I, I just love that they threw that dialogue piece in there that it's like they could have yes. just had the net and I would have accepted the net I would have been like it's the fifties <laughs> whatever it's the net but they had to throw in the dialogue that it's like we don't have time kid jump <laughs> yeah 
Anyway. Yeah, well, and, and I was going to say, too, that the the I love the dramatics of that where, like, obviously it's just it's a scary thing that he has to do. He has to jump from this high beam in this condemned mm-hmm. building onto this tiny little trampoline. But there's also the kind of, like, more psychologically perverse quality of it, which is that how is this kid supposed to trust any adult ever again? Oh, yeah. Totally. For sure. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and so like that, that was part of what I read into the hesitancy that he was having too. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah. how, do, oh, yeah. I, I went, I went to you guys already. I'm in this situation because all of you. Yeah. You know what? I'll find my own way down. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also think, but, uh, then, but, but then you get the clean little wrap up in the car, right? Where you yes. like, uh, I, I promise that I'll never tell another story and I promise that I'll believe you every single time. And, and the dad also, uh, despite weaponizing um, <laughs> it previously in the film, he is proud of him. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah and I did like that. The one thing I, I, I mean, I think it's just uh, it's just wrapping up kind of the, the whole theme of it, but the, the kid was really good at telling stories and I, it's mm-hmm. like I don't I don't want him to necessarily just stop. He just needs to stop lying to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I I, I I know that's not really like the the point of the the, the movie at all. But I I, I would have liked maybe a little bit of like uh, he he channels that energy into yeah. something rather than just the dad's like you're just not going to tell stories anymore and I'll love you. <laughs> yeah. No, look, uh, you know, they're, they're heading into the 1950s. We have to smother imagination, yes. get to work, uh, get to work being good little capitalists. Uh, yeah. We have no room for, for any of this other stuff, but daddy loves you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It's great though. I, I really, I really did like the, the ending and it is still very, very sweet. Um, uh, it's just obviously old school, but kind of yeah. that, that has its charms. So Yep. Yeah, I, I I loved this movie personally. Oh, good, good. I'm so glad. Yeah, it's, yeah, I liked it a lot too. I got to the first time I ever saw it was at a a New York noir festival at Film Forum in like 2007 2008. Uh, so I got to see it projected on like a double bill with you know with another one of the probably one of the noirs that I mentioned earlier. Um, and mm. it plays, it plays to a crowd. Everybody was really into it. So awesome. it's a lot of fun. And there's a beautiful, I should mention this, for, you know, for anybody who wants to check it out, there's a beautiful new uh, Warner Archive Blu-ray that just just came out like a month and a half ago. Ooh, um, oh, amazing so, timing. So yeah, pick that up and check it out because it's a, it's a, it's a really just a crackerjack little thriller. Yeah, I, I'm surprised that it's not a bigger than it is. I mean, did it, how did it, do you know how it did when it, initially came out it was it was uh, actually a box office success oh it was a big one for uh, rko pictures um i remember looking that up because uh i read something about um that it was right when howard hughes bought rko Mm -hmm. and 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 apparently um he thought that the film would bomb and that bobby wasn't a good actor so he didn't want to release it it was like it was actually shot in like 47 or something so it didn't (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so it it didn't get released until um, forty nine, and needless to say, yeah, like uh, Hughes was like uh, dead wrong. Not only was it a huge box office success that played really well with audiences, um, Bobby got a little miniature Oscar because they didn't yeah. let kids be nominated uh, for the Oscars at the time. So, the, but they they credited him because they thought that it was a really terrific performance, and that's people killer. really loved the film. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Un- well deserved. That unerring cinematic instinct that kept the outlaw in production for six years or whatever. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Hughes. <laughs> Howard Hughes. I, I I need that deleted scene in uh, The Aviator of Howard Hughes <laughs> being like, that window movie is not going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I refuse to release it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, but yeah, pivoting towards reductive rating round uh, for the window, which obviously Jason's already been on. He knows, I'm sure. It's the part we remove all the words, all the nuance, and reduce the film between number between one and five. But it's also closing statements or any lines or scenes we didn't happen to hit. Although with a movie this short, I think we did a pretty good job on most yeah. of this. But <laughs> anything that we wanted to hit up before we were done, for, for me, this is a really solid uh, for it's, it's a very dark and tense little kind of, uh, you know, a child endangerment noir, which is a genre that I feel like I should check out a little bit more. Cause I, I, it's kind of rare, but I, it's very tense when you do see yeah. a movie that, that does something like this. It uh, works. one that came out uh, funny enough, this has nothing to do with anything. One I go back to every Halloween. I think of it because we just hit, hit we just passed Spooktober. Mm. Um, but, uh, Jomé Colette Sarah's orphan is a film that I go back oh, to yeah. over and over again like almost every October I watched partially because because there's so much uh like very suspenseful little child in peril sequences in that that are like the kind of thing that people don't think to put in movies anymore but like that that one is really effective and in this I was you know glad to see that someone in 1949 (laughs) was coming up with this and you know again the the the, realizes it with like just the perfect sense of like low angle sort of shadowy danger and suspenseful dramatic irony of of the film and you know we spend this whole time knowing that this boy is telling the truth but also that that truth is really horrible and it shatters you know his entire community and family's image of kind of normalcy that they have which then you see the killers weaponized by pretending that they're a normal couple and family um but yeah after a while you really are just watching every adult in this community like resist and dismiss his like literal screams and cries in order mm-hmm. to maintain you know <laughs> some sense that the, that something like this couldn't possibly happen um in the community and, and it is really effectively um anxiety inducing and you know it's stylized right with you know the the a lot of the shadows and a lot of the windows used as kind of like uh line dividers stark line dividers and some of the imagery and the claustrophobic trap quality that some of it has as well yeah i think it has a really effective sense of danger and yeah not 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 quite paranoia but this very very suspenseful dramatic irony which i you know i really like to see um in in a film sometimes you know that ambiguity and that mystery is a nice quality but sometimes you do really like to just you know the answers up front and you watch not a single person believe that that's what is happening and it (laughs) weaponizes the audience's knowledge it's such a frustrating um experience but really really well handled here so yeah Yeah. solid four for me yeah me i'm i'd honestly like it's a high four for me it might even get the old jamie tm (laughs) on it because i i there's something about like it's the 70 minutes I always love. That's just nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it, it's also just, it, yeah, it's lean. The simplicity of the story is great. I love the focus on just Bobby the entire time. Yep. Um, and I love the way that they, f- they film his perspective. Like we were talking about the low angles. I love the way that they uh, kind of express the relationships between adults and children and, and kind of, you know, how far, I mean, how far a child would have to go in order to prove something in this in this system that we have set up, especially um, given the the kind of uh, familiar circumstance that that he's under, because the the dad does have a lot to handle. He's he's the working man. The mother has to do things throughout the day. Um, So I can understand kind of their resistance at first. Right. Um, It's just it gets very frustrating as every single adult does that to Bobby throughout, like especially the cops and, and, and all of that. Um, but they do it in a really great way in ways that are terrifying, ways that are funny. 
um, ways that are frustrating, but in a very exciting and, and uh, entertaining way. Uh, I, I really, really love this. And, and Bobby Driscoll is unbelievable in this. He carries the entire film. Uh, yeah. and, he's, and he's literally like eight years old uh, in this. So it's, it's one of the best uh, child performances I've ever seen. And I just was really wrapped up in it the entire time. I thought it was very exciting. And uh, yeah, I, I, I just love how lean and simple the story is and, and how well-directed it is and acted. It's really, really, really good. Highly recommend. Yeah. Hell yeah. For you, Jason. Rock solid four, rock solid four. I think it's I think it's one of the best of the New York City noirs, but it's not one that you often hear mentioned with the same kind of reverences like Kiss of Death or Force of Evil or some of those films. Um, mm. But it's I you know it's it's a taut, effective story. It's like you said, it's lean and mean. Um, and I also uh, my affection for it also some of it is just personal. Like I can't tell you what a joy it was after watching all of these New York movies of the thirties and forties that had, you know, like a scene that was shot in actually in New York and everything else was on the back lot of the soundstage after like combing through all of these movies, just like peering and being like, is, is that really in the city to, the, to have a movie that is so present in its place the way that this one is. And it's such a, a vivid snapshot of the Lower East Side and of those tenement buildings and of that, period and of that place it's just so evocative um that i i really adored it on those grounds and then on top of that it's a terrific story well acted well executed yeah absolutely yeah the location work is is huge i will say that was something i didn't mention but like um in 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 my section but like uh, I'm, I'm used to seeing that kind of location work, um, Absolutely. in like the set in like the seventies and eighties. Yep. I don't know, but seeing it in 49 yeah. was really, truly incredible and worth yeah. seeing alone, uh, regardless of the rest of the film. One shot specifically was when he, he goes down the fire escape and he just lands, uh, on the ground where like the alleyway is and you just see like mm-hmm. the trash and he just runs towards, I think it's when he goes, to the police station for the first time and escapes his room. Yep. Yeah, um, and he, he he's like running great. around like a real stray cat yeah. outside too and everything. Yeah, oh, it's, it's great. great. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely uh, check out The Window 1949, but I think that wraps it up here. We are going to uh, move on here and we're going to talk about uh, a Larry Cohen 80s update on a very similar premise with uh, Perfect Strangers. Right, we are back and we are talking Perfect Strangers, the 1984, uh, it's listed here as erotic thriller, which I guess is like partially, (laughs) kind of true, like, I I don't know. There's a little eroticism to it, more than the window, uh, I'll say. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) luckily. (laughs) Um... But yeah, not exactly how I would describe it. It's definitely more of the, you know, kind of suspense, kind of noir, uh, quasi neo noir, but definitely more of a thriller, I guess. This is updated mm-hmm. for the 80s thriller. It's it's kind of like a like a noir um uh premise that has been updated for yep. uh more of like the the thriller 80s. And obviously it's directed by Larry Cohen, which is, you know, for 
for us, we've talked about Larry Cohen, I think like three or four times. We, yeah. he's a New York low budget guerrilla filmmaker King who started out as kind of like a TV writer coming up with sort of ideas and log lines for episodes of all kinds of shows that you've definitely seen, including like t- detective shows like Columbo and stuff like that. And he was, he was very well known for being able to pitch people on premises and things like basically on the spot, a very voracious writer eventually went on to try his hand at directing. And we talked about, um, one, his uh, black exploitation update on like old 30s and 40s gangster movies with Black Caesar, mm-hmm. which is like a very deceptively bleak and complex um, character movie. And then his eventual transition, we also covered into in the 70s into more like grindhouse fare with like his domestic family drama meets like monster movie, It's Alive, or <laughs> uh, even sci fi serial killer movie, uh, God Told Me To. And uh, these are just the ones that we've talked about, but he did like it's alive sequels that are a lot of fun, like especially the third one, which is basically like his version of the lost world. But like (laughs) instead of dinosaurs, the island was filled with buff mutant babies. Um, (laughs) Awesome. Uh, something we haven't talked about either that I've been meaning to cue the winged serpent, which is yes. a movie about, like David Carradine trying to stop like a Neo Aztec summoning of a dragon. <laughs> and he like climbs the Chrysler building with like a, with a, with a machine gun to try and stop it and stuff like that. It's crazy. All of that is to say, if that I Larry may, Cohen's basic, I just, oh, go ahead. To, I know. I just wanted to throw in one of the other sort of like it, uh, that I co- contemplated when we were initially saying maybe um, October. One of the other great sort of cross decade New York double features that I would highly recommend is the original 1933 King Kong with Q the Winged Serpent. That is a, like a bang up. <laughs> oh, that's all awesome. killer. You, you, no you might have just came up with feature. a double feature for us, Jason. Yeah. We'll credit you. Yeah, yeah. there you go. <laughs> Definitely. There you go. <laughs> Um, but but I, I guess all of that is to say that Larry Cohen is, you know, he's a Sleazoids legend. We've always found always found interesting ways to use his budgetary limitations oh, yeah. and never backed down from a trashy concept if he saw a way to turn it into a genre bending New York procedural of some kind <laughs> that he could sneak some sort of commentary into as well a lot of the time. And I'm glad Jason's given us another time, another chance to talk about him. Um, today here where he is going to tackle the same premise as um, The Window. And it was cool also, again, that The Window had so much location shooting because it's something that obviously Larry Cohen is so well known for with his guerrilla style. We talked about it every time we've talked about him. It's so incredible, you know, the way that he will just film a set piece on a real New York street and he'll be like, yeah, you know, I had, you know, I had a couple of dollars for, you know, the camera and (laughs) and, Mm -hmm. uh, the the rest of the budget was just on the free streets of New York, baby. (laughs) And there's just such an authenticity to it. Like there's several scenes in this movie where people are, like well, one specifically where a couple is arguing in the middle of the street yes. and you can tell that a bunch of New Yorkers just started surrounding them and just kind of like being a part of, of the scene. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then just- the other moments are like when there's uh, some detective work, like tailing some person and he films it from very far away. So they're actually weaving in and out of actual New Yorkers, which is, I just love all that. It, it creates such yeah. an authentic feeling to the environment. Yeah, I guarantee you, like, all of those gawkers in that street scene were absolutely certain they were watching a real domestic dispute. Like, we're watching a <laughs> yes. real yeah. married couple 100%. screaming at each other while clutching a child. And, like, oh, some shit's, <laughs> some shit's about to go down here. What the fuck? Another day in New but, York. Yeah. 
No, there there if you haven't seen it there's a wonderful I'm sure you guys have there's a wonderful documentary about Larry Cohen called King Cohen that came out a few years ago. Yeah, it's um, awesome. Everyone it's should watch great. it. It's great. And he gets into a lot of those other sort of stolen location things like when he's, you know, like he stole like the the I think the like the car chase climax of Black Caesar was stolen. Uh the the parade stuff and God told me to he had no permits. Yeah, we we mentioned the <laughs> yeah. parade stuff when we covered the film which is crazy every well, yeah. time i watch it i'm like how did he steal that he's in the middle of a fucking like cop parade and they just yes. i guess they just assumed he had permission to shoot it because he was yes. being so confident about it i, I remember <laughs> yeah. thinking before i knew like cohen's uh like what what he would do in his filmmaking techniques i remember watching that parade scene and going how the hell did he get like all these extras to put like to do this this <laughs> yes. is this is really impressive and then now i i know but like i i remember uh feeling that way when i was watching it initially so it's very cool yeah yeah, yeah. One, one, one of my personal favorites is in the the black caesar sequel which isn't particularly great it's not as it's not as good as the original sure film, but um that fight that takes place in the airport luggage. Yes. Um, oh my God. Where, where, where like literally Fred Williamson is fighting a goon and they're, you know, people are really there at the airport just trying to pick up their luggage like <laughs> off the conveyor belt. And Fred Williamson is literally like jumping onto people's luggage and throwing it at the bad guy, having a fist fight. And all the people are bewildered. Yes. They're like, what is going, we're, we're just watching a real fight between these two. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Oh, well, no. And what I love about the stolen stuff in Black Caesar and Hell Up in Harlem is those are ostensibly supposed to be period people. Pieces. They're supposed to be like taking place right. <laughs> in the sixties, but like clear, like, you know, none of the, the cars and none of the costumes on the unpaid extra, like none of its period. It's all like seventies, but we're, it's okay. It's the sixties, whatever Larry going. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fun stuff. It's great. I love it. Yeah. 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 But, but what's interesting with this is that, um, Larry Cohen doesn't take uh, any time at all to set this one up. No, he's like no. in it right from the opening scene, which is typical of Larry Cohen, which is, you know, he opens on this very jazzy score of a bunch of bridge graffiti and rundown alleyways and like sewer steam. He loves that mm-hmm. kind of uh, atmosphere that you get from that. And you see these silhouettes of sort of like these, these, these murals of, of people all around the city, which we eventually discover over the course of the film. That is actually this, this mafia hitman. When he kills people, he, he, spray paints these little murals for them to represent these bodies that he's taken out of New York and now there they are on the wall standing there again Mm -hmm. Um, but essentially like right away after giving us like a little bit of you know kind of the vibe we're looking at and you know the the location that we're going to be in you know, immediately it's like we're in an alley where we witness some sort of criminal meeting gone wrong. Dude pulls out a knife and just guts a dude and slashes his throat in the opening like mm-hmm. minute. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, 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 a, and a very little boy sees him through the little crack in the fence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just want to say I love the touch of blood splashing across the Wall Street Journal. That's a very uh, Larry Cohen on the nose bit of symbolism, but I appreciated it. Yes. I also like like the change I guess from for this perspective is that the the boy this time is like two years old Tiny. or something like that yeah. and he can't uh, he can't talk yet but they they put it they paint it as like he can understand what is being said to him and what he sees but he can't express mm-hmm. it so it, it becomes almost like or at least at first it, it becomes like this uh, 
like ticking time bomb thing. Like, is this kid going to learn how to talk <laughs> like in the next, <laughs> in the next six months that I'm uh, with him and, and the mother and going to expose yeah. me or whatever. And I, I thought that that uh, was a, a fun perspective change in, in that regard. Yeah, his his first words were going to be spoken on the court stand, um, <laughs> yes, and he was going to be like that guy, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. murderer. <Yeah. laughs> I mean, they even have uh, some sequences with the kid later on when, uh, like, like for instance, the 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 criminal is asking the kid directly when the mother's away. He's like, "What should I do about this cop that's after me?" And then it cuts to <laughs> the kid holding a like a butter knife and doing a stabbing motion as if he's like just take him out man yeah uh and there's a there's a couple moments like that where they use the kid as like he's kind of actually interacting and and knowing what's going on but he can't talk yeah it's, it's definitely an interesting um like flip the fact that we are no longer in the psychological point of view of the child who is experiencing mm-hmm. all of this and trying to navigate his way out but instead we the the, the child is more of um uh, you're a right. Prop. He's more of a device. You can call him a prop. He's, he, yeah, he's a prop, <laughs> but he's a good prop because yep. I mean, uh, shit. This kid kind of, you know, he he has to do some, you know, he has to stay awake for a lot of this production. Mm-hmm. I give him credit. You yeah, know, he's awake mm-hmm. on screen. Um, yeah. and there's a couple really great moments with him. I love the bit in uh, his apartment when when the the guy who is the killer and is trying to you know protect himself um, the mafia keeps coming up to him and being like you know that kid witnessed it you know you need to fucking kill this kid and like the mm-hmm. mafia is literally like in his apartment <laughs> and and he has the kid with him because he's become sort of involved with the mother and the kid which is kind of the premise of the film that he keeps trying to get involved with them to at once try and figure out, you know, if the kid really knows anything, if he would, if he has to kill the kid, but also, you know, he's developing feelings for the mother and maybe he could be the kid's father. There's a whole bunch of weird melodramatic kind of complications there. But at a certain point he has the kid in his apartment. The mafia is in his apartment, which is like as literalized as you could get this premise to be. (laughs) Um, and uh, he tries to lock the kid in the room and the kid totally escapes. And his first thought is, I'm going to the fridge. I'm grabbing that beer. I'm grabbing that beer, son. <laughs> and and there's so many little, like, uh, great little suspenseful moments where, like, he's having a conversation in his living room. And in the background of the frame in the kitchen, you can see the kid walking around and you can see the yeah. dude just freaking out being like, I got to get these killers out of here before that they see that I actually have this kid in my apartment and I'm a lot closer to this situation than I've said I am. Um, So there's a couple interesting little suspenseful moments that are, you know, very different than say the window where you get so much from the kid's perspective. It's more like the kid is a, a liability Mm -hmm. um, in, in, in in an interesting way, both in the plot and also in, in a lot of the actual uh, filmmaking suspense devices and stuff like that as well. Yeah. I was amused by how broadly drawn the mafia guys are in this. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And, and no attempt whatsoever at sympathy is like the, the one guy goes, kids have accidents. They're always falling down. They're always getting hurt. Hey, you know, it's like, wow. Okay. So yeah, there's they, like they really, there's really several just like ordering scenes. a hit on the kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there's several <laughs> scenes where they're just like show up to the criminal and they're just like, so did you kill the fucking kid yet? <laughs> like it's, they just keep doing it. it, it yeah. yeah. There's zero sympathy whatsoever. Yeah. I, I do love how much they try to be sort of implicit about it. Mm-hmm. But like it, they just can't be. They're just like, no, no, we want you to murder this child. Because yeah. Like early on in like that barber sequence, for mm-hmm. example, 
um, where, you know, he's going to the crime boss and the guy has given him a good old haircut while he's there. That and, old uh, chestnut. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and he's like, you know, I, I don't think that there's, you know, any reason to kill the kid. Like, you know, he's he can't even speak. He probably doesn't even know what he saw. And he's just like, yeah, I'm not arguing with you. But on the other hand, <laughs> there's no harm in being absolutely secure. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. You know? And, and then and what's the follow-up line? Uh, you killed kids during the war, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. There's there's some dark stuff in this. <laughs> yeah. But also some, you know, some, some of the stuff, again, that I appreciated a lot is, you know, the, the, every parent has had that experience that she has in that sequence leading up to the big crowd scene we were talking about of looking away for a split second. And then you look yeah. back and your kid is gone and holy shit. So oh, yeah. like, first of all, the, the, how acutely that sequence uh, dramatizes that moment uh, of, of realization and the panic, the full body panic that immediately follows is great. And then I loved the twist that he pulls there where you really do think this, you know, the, the killer we've been following through the movie has swiped the kid. And then you have this whole chase sequence. And then it turns out that it's the estranged father. Really clever yeah. bit, bit of playing there uh, yeah. and, and, and bit of writing. I, I dug that sequence a lot. And then the way, like we said before, that it leads into this great sequence where clearly they have like 50 unpaid extras because they just started <laughs> shouting at each other on a, in a, an intersection in Greenwich Village. You know, I and love it, that. And it, it kind of shows how like rough around the edges this estranged dad is too, because I think totally. one of the first things that he says, like he takes he takes the kid without t- telling her, showing her anything like that, and then when she challenges him on it and follows him, he says something like, "Well, I just figured you'd think it was me." Like it's like, what? <laughs> Are you fucking insane? <laughs> like this is just in the middle of New York behavior. City. <laughs> like I'm just yeah. gonna assume. Oh, I didn't see you take him, but I'll just assume that my, my the father that I don't have any contact with just took him, and yes. he's gonna be completely okay. Like what a <laughs> loser. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I I do love that you can tell that it's all real people in the streets who think that they are witnessing like a real kidnapping or family mm-hmm. dispute taking place. Like yeah. the whole neighborhood starts mm-hmm. circling mm-hmm. like this little altercation that's taking place. They start like berating the dad and shouting at him and like pointing fingers and shit. At yeah, him. Like, yeah, dude. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and she she has to say at one point, you know, uh, I know what you're like when there's no witnesses around and the show is over, and she, you know, she she puts a kibosh to that whole situation. But but up until then, like you know, you yeah. you were you were just feeling a, a a real sense of danger, you know, because mm-hmm. of the actual premise of the film, and you you don't you don't really lose that knowing that it's just the dad who was trying to kidnap you. Like someone was still trying to kidnap that kid yeah. in like a really busy street that everyone was there. Um, yeah, no, that's also. Sense of danger. Uh, the, 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 oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I just say that that sense of danger that that you're talking about. You know, that is uh, I, another thing that sort of carries over from the window for me. Is mm. you know, you do get the the scene where he's got him in the park and he is eyeing those oh my God. fence spikes. Yes, uh, <laughs> as he's swinging crazy. him, crazy. Yeah, like that's sort of the equivalent of the uh, of the the sitting on the fire escape sequence in the window for me. Like it was very tense and upsetting, yeah. and it did seem like totally possible that the, something bad was about to happen to that kid. 
And the um, pacing of it is really just that much scarier because Cohen, like, he does these low angles where he's uh, mm-hmm. he's showing, like, basically the kid's swinging um, and he's doing it from below the, the kid pointing upwards. Yeah. So it really exaggerates the height that he's probably already at. And then he does yeah. things like he makes the, the scene go quicker as the as kind of the, the tension and nervousness ring up and right before you think this might be the moment that mm-hmm. he just has this kid fly into the concrete or those spiked, uh, that spiked fence, the, the dad stops him and it still results in the kid like hitting the ground and kind of hurting himself. But it is at least a slight sense of relief because you mm-hmm. know that he's not going to get spiked on the fence, but there's still a complication to it because we know that he doesn't have the best relationship and the mom doesn't have the best relationship with the father. Who's the one that stops the, the situation. Um, and then in front of his son, he's just like gets his ass kicked uh, yeah. brutally. And it's just, it's yeah. very complicated. It, 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 I just felt nothing but sorry for the kid, I guess, in that yeah. circumstance. <laughs> really? Oh, this kid's gonna, this kid is still in therapy. I mean, like, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and not, and not even necessarily just the character. The actor, I'm sure, is also, if, if you're that age and you're in a Larry Cohen movie, like, you're, you're in rough shape for a while. Yeah. As folks have to remind him every day that it was just a film, I swear. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, 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 and also, like, what's really perverse about that sequence is that the excitement of the sequence is that you are in the headspace of a guy who is very seriously considering murdering yeah. a child. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Um, and you've seen like, like, this like, for like, 45 like, like, minutes already. Yeah, like the, the way the way that it's edited where you just get those, those as Jamie mentioned, those low angle POV shots of the swing going higher and higher and then mm-hmm. you get cuts back to the spikes, you get cuts back to Johnny being like, hmm, yeah. what if these two things were to meet each other and <laughs> I was to, to do that? <laughs> and I just walk away. Yeah, so there, the, I think that Larry Cohen really gets the suspense um, sequencing that he does in this really right. If yeah. I had any kind of like any sort of issue that for for me was just that um, some of the way that it kind of tries to drag out the premise uh, oh, yeah. felt a little long to me. Yeah, um, I agree. That it that you know because like and part part of the issue I think is that Larry Cohen you know he just he, he gets to it right away yeah. you're so instantly excited in the first minute yeah and you're like oh my god what could possibly you know he doesn't even need the setup we're already into the the meat of this it's crazy mm-hmm. but then there is like probably at least an hour of just um, this guy trying it. to woo the mom and thinking about it yeah, and yeah. it and. It takes basically at a certain point, I thought that the climax was going to be that the mom was going to figure it out and we were going to have like 20 or 30 minutes of the perversity of realizing she's fallen in love with like a killer and the person who had, mm-hmm. has made her. But she doesn't find out until no. literally the last like three minutes. Yeah. And there's yeah. a, there's a there's a lot of time spent with Johnny, who is just do I kill the kid? Do I not kill the kid? Do I kill oh, well, the kid? And. and and romancing the mom like this, you know, let's and romancing the mother. This is a mid eighties movie. And so there are many montages. There are montages <laughs> yes. galore. It's not quite Rocky four level of montage <laughs> over. That's hard to get to, <laughs> but there is, a, I, I, there's, there's several, uh, you know, just sort of romance in the city and, and the aforementioned eroticism. And yes, we got, we got, there is a sense a bit of marking time there. I, I would agree with that. Although I will Rom- so no romantically uh uh crashing an anti-rape rally is oh, uh, is yeah. a very 
<laughs> it's a very funny part, which is another thing that Larry Cohen had to have just done. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and he's, he's just like, that's cool. We'll, we'll, we'll incorporate it into the film. We'll write it in, um, here hand, hand, have Sally, um, handing out flyers for a vigil mm-hmm. against rape. Although I will say, I got to give a little bit of credit to her performance. She really made me laugh with the, uh, come on, it's against rape. <laughs> like, take the flyer. Yeah. like, aren't you against rape? Please take the anti-rape flyer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Although I, and again, one, you know, you mentioned it a little earlier, but one of those montages is the walking. Uh, okay. Like I just, I walking through times square being tailed yep. by a sleazy PI who's eating yep. a slice while <laughs> synthesizer and drum machine music is playing. Like just inject that into my veins, baby. Like that is, yeah. that is 80 sleaze, New York cinema. That's everything I want in one sequence is like, yes, it's so gross and, uh, synthetic and perfect. I loved everything that was happening in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that sequence in, in particular, cause like the husband is the one who hires the PI to follow John because John right. is obviously romancing his, his ex-wife and he wants to know more about him. And so you get a really classic New York sort of stalking scene. It's not even yep. a slice. It's a big old hot dog, which is even better. Oh, is that it? Oh, <laughs> Jesus. Yes. Lizzie. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, I only know that because I took note and I was like, that is the most New York thing I've ever seen. It's like <laughs> some easy PI stalking this man through Times Square with a hot dog in his hand. And of course, in Larry Cohen fashion, it turns into a car chase that's like partially shot handheld in the interiors. Right. And, um, uh, I was reminded a little bit of how he he loves to do those like sidewalk uh, chases. He didn't get yes. quite that far in this. Instead, he has um, he has Johnny um, you know lead him to like this condemned building, which is another actually thing that sort of mm-hmm. uh, to, to talk about with the window. Yeah. Uh, but he takes him to a condemned building, and one thing I really liked about this is that there there's something interesting here that Cohen you know he keeps a lot of that '70s kind of grit and grime that he had, but obviously this is updated a little bit for the '80s. And there is like this really sort of like overexposed kind of sheen to it that I was mm-hmm. curious yeah. about. I, you know, Cohen doesn't always do that kind of stuff, so I was I was curious where it was going to kind of play in, and it, it played in a little bit to some of the romanticism of the actual montage and the seduction right. elements of it, but it worked really well in this murder sequence where he leads the PI in there and, uh, you know, he's right near a condemned building near the water and where he jumps out and he stabs him. And there's this incredible image of him like blurred and silhouetted against the New York skyline, dragging his body into the condemned, um, building. And as all of that overexposure made so much sense to me when I saw that image, cause it's Mm -hmm. so bright that uh, totally obstructs your vision. And and it's towering, right? I think is one of the, is one of the, uh, the buildings that one of the twin towers in, yeah, in that so. shot because it's yeah. just like I, I just love it it's absolutely massive it's just towering over everything and yeah that silhouette mm-hmm. shot I, I wrote that down too i thought that that was it might be the most gorgeous shot in the movie it's unbelievable yeah 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 also so there, there, there's really good sequences like that and throw all throughout this honestly also mm-hmm. i really like the uh uh kind of the complications you feel when he initially gets the PI because we know that this guy is trouble in some mm-hmm. way, shape or form. Like he, he, sure. He's, he's kind of getting involved with the, the mom and, and through that maybe we'll make a better decision, but we still think that that kid is in danger. And so when, when the, 
when the father goes to the PI, you have these mixed feelings because the, the reason he's doing it is because he's just like a total psychopath that doesn't trust his his ex-wife and, and, and all of that. Um, but then at the same time, you're kind of like, this is good that a PI is investigating this dude because <laughs> right. like he's going to kill a kid, uh, possibly. Um, yeah. So I, I did like that kind of complication of the whole matter. And also there's just kind of a weird length to that PI scene in the office, uh, the initial PI meeting, because mm-hmm. he starts like the PI almost starts giving him uh, like life advice and, and yes. stuff like that. And then eventually <laughs> the scene just ends and he's like, anyway, if you could uh, find something on this <laughs> son of a bitch, that'd be great. <laughs> like, and I just yeah. I thought their relationship for that one scene was was very strange, but I, I appreciated it. Well, the, yeah, the, the, there's a lot of weird things with the, the father character because mm-hmm. there's there's part of it that, you know, he's doing things that, again, you know, are very clearly like he's trying to kidnap his own child. He doesn't yeah. have very very good motivations for a lot of the things that he's doing. But then they include a scene where, you know, he actually meets with the, the ex-wife and he kind of talks to her and, mm, you know, yeah. she, she kind of agrees that he's kind of like matured and maybe he's ready for a wife now and things like that. Like there's definitely a little bit of Cohen sneaking in, um, you character know, development, like, uh, God forbid. Uh, yeah, a little <laughs> yeah. bit of character development, but also like, you know, at, at a certain point he wants you to really feel bad for this dad, which is hard mm-hmm. to do after how we meet him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sure. But, 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 but in the end, in the final sequence, there's a part where they really, really want you to be like, you know, trust the dad a little bit, you know, <laughs> yeah, he's uh, trying. <laughs> he, he's not, he's not the guy who's kidnapped because they have the girl, um, her friend who is very into this idea of feminist homicide. <laughs> <laughs> She, she she keeps she keeps her gun around at yep. her uh, at at her store all the time, and she just really wants an excuse to shoot a guy. And so when she's gonna shoot the father mm-hmm. in the big climax, I was I was very confused at some of the feelings that Larry Cohen wanted me to feel, other than I guess sheer chaos. That's of, what I uh, yeah. That's the only thing I could read because I did feel like. I, it, I don't know. It, it's it was almost a little her feminist too friend was going to shoot her 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 husband who tried to kidnap the kid. And, yeah, and I don't think yeah. they ever go back to that either. So we don't really know if she shot him or not. They just have. I think I think they just end it on she's holding him at gunpoint and he's just like I'm not the bad guy here. And then that's it. And yeah. you're kind of like God. I really hope she didn't shoot the guy. I mean, I, I understand why she might think what she thinks, but it, we we never really get that answer. I found that a little peculiar but um mm-hmm. but yeah that yeah. that moment is nuts i also like their little uh the, the perverse line that she has when she's talking to her for the first time in the shop and she says something like the uh the the kitchen prison that the men have put us in uh has plenty of sharp weapons or something <laughs> like that <laughs> so she implies she wants to like stab men and shit. yeah she's a yeah. wild character <laughs> no i want to talk well that that actor is uh is the great ann magnuson who uh has done a fair amount of film work but not a lot of big things she wasn't a she mm. starred in a, a john malkovich movie called making mr right that uh i think susan seidelman directed after desperately seeking susan um but ann magnuson was a big figure in the sort of downtown new york theater slash performance art scene of the early okay. 1980s she was a really like like kind of a superstar among that scene and what I find interesting about Larry Cohen using her in this film as he does is that the same year as this, he made another film uh, called Special Effects. 
And I want to watch that so bad. I've heard that's great. It's really interesting. It's like, and what's cool about it is that like, this is him kind of doing a riff on rear window, sort of by way of the window. Uh, special effects is kind of his vertigo take. So he was clearly like sort of in a, in a Hitchcock riffy mood in 1984. But that film starred uh, Zoe Lund from Miss 45 and yep. Eric Bogosian, who at that time was also on in this same sort of downtown offbeat performance art theater scene. Um, and mm. I just find that would, interesting. Would that have been around the time he was on stage with talk yeah. radio? Yeah, not nice. I, I think it, it was around or maybe right before talk radio, because before talk radio, he was doing these sort of monologue shows where he would just be in these little right. black box theaters and he would come out and play like six different characters doing monologues. I just what I love the idea of him working of, of that. Not only was he sort of in New York and just continuing to make his exploitation movies, but that he was still plugged into the art scene in New York where he was finding these exciting performers in these sort of weird spaces and putting them into his exploitation movies. I think that in a weird way says a lot about the kind of filmmaker that he was, that he was trying to make those discoveries still. Yeah, he was he was looking at these amazing artists and being like, hey, I got a small role about a woman who just wants to commit feminist homicide. Yes. <laughs> Are you in? Yeah. She was like, yeah, all yes, right. I, yeah, all right. I'll do it. Yeah. And knowing <laughs> that knowing the kind of performance art that Ann Magnuson was doing at that time, I, I would not be surprised to find out that she either improvised or rewrote some of her dialogue because that's very much <laughs> in the in the school of the kind of stuff that she was doing. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. The, the the mom has a great line at the end of that scene that I loved, where she, you know, she's saying that she's going to take care of her son. She's going to make him strong and healthy, boy, so that one day a woman can shoot or stab him. So yeah, there's there's some interesting sort of like uh, you know gendered commentary kind of that Cohen's trying to fit in. I don't know how much of it like all like lands with uh, the you rest know, like of the it, film, like how well, just like how I don't know how built it. It, it does feel a little bit like what Jason. Was was talking about that some of it might have been improvised dialogue that gives character rather than mm -hmm. something that was really yeah. baked into right. you know what he was trying to get into with the you know the, the the main plot that's taking place but i will say that there you know despite the fact that there's maybe a little bit too much of it there's a little bit of pervert uh, perversity that i did enjoy of the main character john who is the killer who is this mob hitman who killed this uh, uh, drug dealer for the mob and obviously got seen. There is something really interesting um, about some of the seduction sequences, not all of them because there's mm -hmm. so many, mm -hmm. <laughs> they, they really do lean into the eighties. Like, yep. you know, we got to have a montage and the soundtrack going. He's like, I'm a shadow on the walls of the city, baby. And there's <laughs> shots of graffiti and them walking around. And, but, but, but there, there is like a, you know, there was that a song. cool element to watching it transition from like a stalking sequence of her, to then him, you know, in trying to pull off like this little meat cute and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and there was something perverse about watching him like in the first time he meets her, like holding the child yeah. that, mm -hmm. you know, you know that he has to kill at some point and stuff. So like there's some elements in there that I think do work and it does have kind of this, this nice little lonely New Yorker, weirder meat cute kind of vibe to it. Um, I you really, know, and, and, and we know, similarly to how we knew in the window, we know, you know, his motivations for tracking her down, which kind of gives us a little bit of information that makes it a little bit more uh, icky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I really like the, uh, there's a one diner scene. I think it's either their first date or their second date. And uh, she, she's basically just talking about the child and how, you know, he's going to be growing up soon, in the, or at least in the next stage of his development. And she mentions, he's we like, we won't get no, him to shut up. Yeah, in no time, <laughs> he'll be walking and talking, and we won't be able to get him to shut up. And he'll be asking yeah. all these questions, <laughs> and it's just going to be a, a time for us. And I just love, like, Johnny's face. He's going to say all the things that he's seen in the last <laughs> one to two months. Yeah, <laughs> specifically. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, and Johnny's face in that is just so, like, distraught and concerned. Yeah. He's like, oh my God. I, and also, it kind of, I think, you know, just pushes him to be motivated more to, to get closer to her. Uh, he is intrigued, but at the same time, it's kind of convenient for him and the job he has to do as well. So, uh, yeah, I love, I love those complications. I had a lot of fun with those. I like the one where he returns to his nice, uh, his nice apartment that, uh, he can't let her know that he has because he's kind of pretending to be like this, uh, this like wandering drifter guy, but he has this really nice apartment that he earns with his mafia money and he has a blonde girlfriend and there's a great scene where they talk to each other and she says, you know, I, you know, I've, I, I'm on the pill, you know, I've taken all of this, you know, you, you know, you don't, I, what do you, what is this whole thing about a baby? And cause he keeps talking in his sleep about, about <laughs> the baby that he has to get rid of <laughs> <laughs> followed by, you know, a scene of him riding bikes around New York with her yes. and going to diners and, you know, becoming this sort of quasi stepfather to, you know, getting to know her, her little boy and possibly yeah. filling in that kind of role in his life. That, that stuff, it, it wasn't quite as uh as pointed as this other film that i'm about to mention but it's some of the perversity there did remind me a little bit of um the 80s horror movie we talked about with adam name just a couple months ago the stepfather mm. okay um, yeah where, where you get a little bit of this idea of like you know this guy who's trying to fill in kind of this domestic role yeah. for you might have more ominous intentions and things like that mm-hmm. what, what's strange to me though is um and again, kind of my only real issue with this movie is that it doesn't get to the point where the mom is involved right. and yeah. the kid isn't all the, like, and, and the kid's not developed enough to be all there. So we never get a character in the movie who for very long knows the situation that we're right. in. Uh, so, so you, you, you don't get the stuff like with Bobby Driscoll where you're like, oh my God, he knows he's got to do something. He's got to figure something out. And I was spent a lot of the movie waiting for the mother to, you know, figure something out and to, or at least be suspicious. Yeah. yeah. This is the most incurious woman, um, that's <laughs> yeah. ever been written into a movie. <laughs> it takes, it takes her child, uh, being abducted on a merry go, uh, traveling merry-go-round in order for her Incredible to realize the danger image, that she's by the way. been in this entire time. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and what an image. That is a crazy image. Um, but that, yeah, that it, and that's like the last, I'd say, 10 minutes of the movie. She finally figures mm-hmm. it out. And, uh, Hon- and even honestly, then she can't. It's not, it's not even that. Yeah. Well, that was, <laughs> even then she can't do anything about it. And uh, she, she ends up like, well, because she, she she still thinks it might be the father when the kid is kidnapped, right? She doesn't right. figure out that it's him until literally I, I wrote the time down. Oh, it's yeah, like you're right. four minutes. Yep. She finds out that it's him when she finds the photo at home. Right. right. It's, um, it's we see him go into the car, but we but she doesn't yes. see him. Right. You're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. 
Um, but but you're right. That sequence is still incredibly suspenseful with just the way that it's it's filmed. And like they, they set it up earlier in the film that her she, she takes um, Johnny with the kid to go to this like uh, merry-go-round that's on like the back of a truck. Yeah, that this uh, I don't that, know what that, that's that about, but that's not around. That anymore. seems just so unsafe. For, for the record, <laughs> we're not doing the portable merry-go-rounds on the back of trucks here in New York anymore. And I'm I'm glad because my fucking kids would want to ride on it. I swear to God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but it leads to an incredible, I don't know how I, I'm going to trust Larry Cohen on this one, <laughs> but I, I don't know how that they filmed that. That's so dangerous to yeah. like, oh, there's yeah. no way that that is supposed to be functional. Like it's already dangerous as is. Yes. There's no way that even at the time yeah. it was meant to be functional with a kid on it while the vehicle was in motion. And so you get POV oh, yeah. shots of it literally driving around the streets with the kid on it. Yeah. And they are terrifying because they look like that kid is in real danger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that they had something on set that assured some kind of safety, but <laughs> mm-hmm. well, if we know anything about Larry Cohen, he, yes, he, he, he crosses every T and dots every I. So I'm sure you're right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So that, that stuff's really crazy. Um, again, every suspense sequence here, I think is handled really really well when yeah. it actually hits it's 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 well conceived in the filmmaking it's really perverse um for me it's just uh some of the gestures towards kind of like the more 80s romantic seduction yep. stuff if they would have built into the into the writing i think a little bit more time for us to just like have the characters wrestle with how perverse that is yeah, rather than just kind other. of johnny being the point of view for the entire time um you know, I think I could have got a little bit more out of it. But, you know, again, some of it's still, you know, I, I liked the montage where they're playing uh, Mama, look what the big city's doing to your little boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, which f- leads straight into like a big, sweaty, romantic sex scene mm-hmm. that uh, made me kind of giggle because it has it does that thing where they briefly you can't tell them apart because it's that era where they have the same hair. I reminded <laughs> me of Point Break a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, very, very sweaty, very 80s sex mm-hmm. scene taking place. Very synthy. Um, and lots of synths. Very synthy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, then it, then it turns into, you know, Johnny is getting pressured by the mafia. You know, he is realizing that the kid is on some level, probably going to be a a liability at some point. Um, and he's got to, you know, he's got to do something about it. You know, he, he, he's spent long enough with the kid to know that the, you know, the kid's not a moron. (laughs) Uh, he's he, he seeing some stuff anyway. Um, he has some expressions on his face. I do like that scene where he tells him the story of uh, E.T. He's like, you've seen E.T., right? <laughs> to the kid. <laughs> and, and, and he's being you like, you, you know how when they when they all told on the kids that they had E.T. And, you know, he kind of <laughs> shriveled up and he looked like he was dying. That would happen to me yeah. if you told on me. Yeah. And uh <laughs> and, and he's like, and unlike E.T., I don't got a planet to go home to. So you <laughs> yeah. know, he's really trying to like logic his way with this kid who can't speak. Right. Um was that was that like, the scene I, I, was that the scene where he was bathing the child though? Because he, that, he was also bathing the that child. That made me uncomfortable. <laughs> that made me a little <laughs> bit uncomfortable. I'm just gonna put that up. <laughs> I also think uh, it's pr- pretty funny uh, uh, child moment where the lieutenant that keeps popping up to question the mm-hmm. the mother 
um, and kind of scold her and just be a kind of a dickhead also. Uh, he has a moment where the, the kid goes up to him with a butter knife and starts like doing a stabbing <laughs> motion or whatever. And so that's yeah, kind he's of literally learning the kids like, yeah, exactly. He's, he's basically taking in what he's seen and, and applying mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah. And that I, I great. thought that that was just what an image to watching a two year old try to stab a cop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man. And yeah, this thing has a, I think a, a pretty killer ending in the sense of like just the, yes. the image of, of the last minute or so mm-hmm. I think is, is very good. And the chaos that it, that it brings, like we were talking about. Oh yeah. The ending is, is genuinely great. Yeah. Like the, the, yeah. The, the, the last like three minutes of the movie, I think. Oh yeah. It's, it's unreal. Like we were talking about with the kind of the chaos of the, uh, the, the homicidal feminist friend and, uh, the, <laughs> the estranged father, but then it does this cut to, uh, the mother just very like terrified basically of, of, of who's going to come through the door. And she, opens the door, has the knife prepared because she thinks she's going to need to defend herself and just without even really thinking about it, just stabs Johnny. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and it's kind of played as like this, this reveal where we're not quite sure. Does he still have the kid? What's, what's going on? And they just have a shot of the doorway and Johnny just goes on his knees and lays down and the kid is right behind him. And yeah. there's just this, like, th- there, there has to be this incredibly confusing moment for the mother that you never really do get to uh, explore too much, but like she's, she didn't really know. And now she's just stabbed Johnny. Uh, The kid is behind her and saw this violence. And now she's just kind of left with like, like what the hell, what happened here? Like this, this was because she just found out about this. So I can't imagine the confusion that she was going through. Yeah. And then Larry Cohen rolls credits and I do appreciate (laughs) that. I do appreciate that. He's like, no need to fuck around here. Movie done. Yep. Just holds the sun and, and that's it. Yep. Yeah. And I, I, I do love the way that he frames that where like it's the silhouette kind mm-hmm. of image. And when he opens the door, it's all the light from the hallway, kind of like a bleeding in. And the way that it's structured is that you have her do the stab and then he falls and his fall um, physically reveals the child right behind him. And it's supposed right. to be the, you know, the big moment where you realize, you know, because he reached earlier, he took kidnapped the kid in the back of the merry-go-round and took him to the rundown building where he's been, you know, killing people. And after he kills them, it's when he does the spray painting to acknowledge that, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's taken another soul from New York or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, you know, you're supposed to realize, you know, he decided he could not go through with it. He could not kill the kid. He was bringing the kid home. But up until that point, I mean, he's been so psychotic for like mm-hmm. 10 or 15 minutes of the movie. I didn't quite feel that gesture, but I did like it from the mother's point of view where you get the great shot of her approaching the door with the knife behind the book and use and, and, and she just confusion. saw the photos. I forgot about that. And she just saw the photos. So she knows that he's, you know, the, yeah, the one who did the killing and she kind of has, you know, some immediate idea of who is the one who's, you know, got her child and everything. But yeah, the, 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 the actual killing itself is really solid, especially too, because it does mirror the, uh, the knifing gesture Mm -hmm. that, um, uh, the, the the little baby's been doing the entire movie. Yeah. And so he, now now he's watched. You know, it opens with the baby seeing a knife murder, and then it ends with the baby seeing a knife murder. But yeah. it's the mother doing it to you know what you know the movie tried to kind of gesture towards being a possible surrogate father. So th- that stuff I think is really effectively visualized, and you know it it, it is a great conceived um, 
ending and even the end actual image on the the spray painted bodies of like a family oh, to indicate that, that was he, sad you know <laughs> yeah yeah that was Man. gonna be my for, question for, was if he had taken the kid out would he have done like a little graffiti silhouette or <laughs> would he have done it to scale i think so i think okay. he would have I think he would have. <laughs> I mean, he's a tenant, you know, he, he's, he's a, he's an artist of some kind. I'm sure he, he would want it to be accurate. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I thought, I thought <laughs> when I saw that, that shadow family, I was like, I was pretty saddened by that. I thought that was a really impactful image. Mm-hmm. Especially cause that mm-hmm. representation has been so, you know, just cold throughout <laughs> the entire thing. It's just been him basically piling up bodies from New York. Right. And this was kind of a representation of what he wanted to move forward to and just couldn't. So, yeah, pretty sad. Yeah, well, I think uh, pivoting towards reductive rating round, I think, on on perfect... Uh, strangers. This one gets like a like a solid to maybe even a high three for me. I kind of yeah. want to go go back to it um, at at some point just because I you know I, I feel like a lot of Larry Cohen's you know once I kind of know what they are mm-hmm. and I'm prepared for what he's doing, I'm a little <laughs> bit more open to engaging um, with them. And I did think this one had like a really cool like in terms of what Larry Cohen is is delivering with you know the kind of lonely weirdo New Yorker romance seduction quality with the overexposed uh, you know film and the the uh, you know. 80s soundtrack that he's kind of pulling off and everything like that and and having all of those romantic qualities be made like more um twisted by the fact of the circumstances on how these two know each other i was surprised at how much of this movie was meant to be you know kind of a a quasi love story Mm -hmm. um but but there there were for me just a, a little bit too much uh absurdity in some of the characterizations and I don't know how much I love the main performances and chemistry between um, the main two even though I can see what they were gesturing towards it just didn't uh, I didn't feel that you know romance quality as much as I just like respected the style that they were going for Um, but I will say that once this got into you know the stuff with the kid and once it gets into the actual suspense sequences with the kid and like again the the swing set sequence and the merry-go-round sequence and a lot of the stuff um, you know with the the amount of confusion around some of the gendered stuff between the father maybe kidnapping the child and then revealing you know that you know actually it's this other guy um, there was a lot of stuff that was really, I think, um, interesting in there. Um, yeah. I, I just did, I did wish that, you know, somewhere in the like solid hour and 15 minutes, that is all the ro- <laughs> either one, the romantic scenes between them or the pressure from the gangsters and vice versa. I wish there was a little bit more time for there to be like a really extended climax. Cause the climax of this really is like kind of like five to 10 minutes long. And I really felt that we could have upped the perversity on right. the climax by yeah. getting the mother a little bit more involved, making her a little bit more curious about who she's been spending the last <laughs> week of her life with <laughs> yeah um, and and just yeah getting getting a little bit more um, dramatically involved in the situation rather than just you know waiting for the 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 kind of ball to drop because making that you know the kind of dramatic crux of the movie that you're waiting for the mom to find out. It's like, you know, it, she sees that photograph <laughs> with t- two minutes before she stabs him in the chest, yeah. <laughs> which is a great moment. I will say the Quick ending decision is making. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. I, but yeah. Uh, a lot of, a lot of solid sequences for sure though. So solid three. Yeah. Yeah. I'd give it a probably solid three to high three as well. Um, I, uh, 
like with any Cohen movie, I always appreciate the bizarre qualities and just the the strangeness that I feel when I'm watching it. Um, I I was hoping it it dove a little bit deeper into the perversity of just like him contemplating actually killing the the kid because that swing that's sequence true is you're, you're, so you're kind of meant to feel sad for him really fast after the sequence where we legitimately saw him contemplate murder right. a child. yeah yeah exactly and i just think that they're like that swing sequence is really good and really tense and i think kind of shows him thinking about it but you're not quite sure if he's actually going to do it still and that just creates a lot of tension and and i i really like that and i thought it could have used maybe one or two more moments of that whether it be a little more subtle or more exaggerated i I just think that would have worked well also like uh you said josh i think the the mother probably could have been involved uh at least near the end a little bit more um just because she has to play kind of stupid the whole time and it would have been nice for her to realize it without like two minutes left of the movie uh so uh, yeah, although I'm, I'm, I do I'm just love imagining that ending, how perverse so. on a character level it would have been to realize, you know, like how perverse is it that, you know, you have been romantically involved with the person that has put like you and your child in danger and right. the person who's trying to kill your child. And she just she literally gets 90 seconds to consider that. Yeah, she's um, like, uh, before, grab the knife <laughs> before she stabs him. And I'm like, man, where is like a scene where like she has to consider killing him for the, you know, just to for her own maternal instincts sake. Yeah, right. yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I still think this is a really interesting story. And I, I also do agree that I think the, the two leads chemistry, although isn't bad, I just, I didn't quite get into it. I didn't quite believe it. Um, but I, I still think that they did a really good job and I, and I do, I did really like the, uh, the inclusion of the estranged father that really created a lot of, uh, cool complications, (laughs) both with the, the gender stuff, but also, um, I, I loved that scene with him where the all of New York is just surrounding them as they're having this mm. like domestic fight in public and he's trying to steal his kid back and like they're, they're, him being thrown into the mix I think created some really interesting complications so yeah there's there's a lot to really Absolutely. like in this uh, I just think it's a, a bit messy here and there um, and doesn't quite land everything but still still really good so I, I would I would recommend We're checking it. out yeah. For you, Jason. Uh, medium three, I would say. Mid three. Uh, okay. I, I agree. The Especially Brad, uh, I don't know how to even pronounce his last name. Brad Ridgen, who plays Johnny, not the greatest actor. Um, the, uh, mm, the, yeah. the woman who plays the mother, she is, she is considerably better, I thought, but yeah, there's, there is, it, it drags in that second act quite a bit. There's, there's too many eighties montages. Um, I agree with pretty much all of the criticisms that you're making, but again, from the perspective of like as a New York time capsule, um, hard, oh, to, yeah. hard to beat, hard to beat. And, and partially because Cohen, you, you really are getting unfiltered with Cohen, like even something like taxi yeah. driver, which is, you know, or a midnight cowboy or something like that, which sort of has that New York seediness still has like at least that layer mm-hmm. of artifice because it's like a professional Hollywood studio production or whatever. And the fact that he really is just out there, like, you know, gorilla style grabbing shit on the streets, you know, like a French new wave <laughs> filmmaker or something like that really does give it that extra, just sort of layer of, of grime that, that I love in, in the New York cinema of this period. 
Um, yeah, I love the way he shoots and New York. It's yeah. Kind of I, I was best. just looking it up too. Um, Anne Carlisle, who plays Sally here, who I, I did think was was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I ha- I haven't seen it, but Jason, she's in Liquid Sky. Oh God, which is, a, which is a, I've heard that's good. I haven't seen that. Oh my God. Yeah, she's 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 the lead, right? I'm totally Sky. embarrassed that I've never made that connection. That is that is that's. That's genuinely embarrassing that I hadn't put those two together. Um, yeah, that is all good. But yeah, no, Liquid Sky is terrific. But Liquid Sky is like is cuckoo bananas. Um, <laughs> yeah, awesome. I've, I've I've blind bought the Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray. Yeah, because I've just assumed that it's like the kind of thing that we would love on this show. Yeah, but yeah, I'm, I'm, since that came out two years before this, I'm going to guess that Larry Cohen was a fan. Absolutely. <laughs> and again, that sort of that sort of speaks to him being kind of plugged into some of the weirder stuff that's happening in the city artistically uh you mentioned i should also mention just because you mentioned vinegar syndrome uh that they have a really nice blu-ray of this title out um oh cool of, of, oh perfect, of strangers perfect strangers as well. yeah 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 they have cool. that's that's how i watched it and, and revisited it for this was yeah it's it's strange because the 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 title card on it is blind alley which i assume is just right. like an an alternate title that was on you know the print that they that they restored or whatever but yeah but yeah that's, that's what i'm guessing it's too. a it's a really uh it's a really good blu-ray it's worth picking up cool yeah, well, I think that that will wrap it up for um, everything this week. Uh, that was, what were we just talking about? The Window, 1949, <laughs> and Perfect Strangers, 1984? 1984? Yeah. Thanks so much, Jason, for for joining us and for bringing these um, films with you. If you've yes. got anything to plug while you're here, this is where we have you do it. And I think you've got something pretty big. We've maybe mentioned it already. There's a there's a, a book. It's called Fun City Cinema, <laughs> New York City and the Movies That Made It. It's available now in a handsome uh, holiday gift appropriate coffee table book form. Uh, or amazing, also, or also for for much uh, much less expensively, it is also available in Kindle and Nook and other ebook formats. Um, but it's it's a 100 year dual history of New York City and New York City movies uh, and their various intersections, handsomely uh, illustrated with still frames and behind the scenes photos and all that sort of thing. Uh, covers. 10 chapters. Each chapter covers a decade and focuses on kind of a key New York movie of that decade. Uh, it's a, it's a good book and I'm really proud of it. Um, and then also I should mention that then in the process of, you know, between turning in the book and it coming out, we also started a spinoff podcast, uh, which is also called fun city cinema. Um, Mike hole is my producer and co-host on that. And that every, we have 10 episodes total. Uh, and each one is just a little audio documentary about, you know, we pick out a couple again of key New York movies that are sort of important in the history of New York as well. And we play clips and we talk to, you know, uh, film historians and film critics and filmmakers. Uh, Walter Hill is, is on an episode of the show. We got our taxi driver. Nice. episodes. Oh my God. Our, our taxi driver episode where I talked to Martin Scorsese is coming up soon. Um, Ooh. A lot of good stuff in there, and and again, it's you know, it's we're we're telling more stories that sort of there wasn't room for in the book, or going into more detail than we were able to uh, in that format as well. So that's that's the podcast. It's Fun City Cinema, and it's where wherever you pick up your podcasts. That sounds awesome, amazing. Yeah, go go look into all of that. Buy the book, listen to the podcast, get into it, find out about New York. It's how I'm going to find out about it. Yay! I'm looking yeah. at I'm looking at the book right now. Um, 
let's see for our listeners in one week's time, we are going to be back continuing Noir November because this was the, this was obviously the, the start of it with this episode. And next week we are leaving New York and we're, we're touching down over the pond in London where we are going to be talking about the long good Friday, yeah. 1980, Bob Hoskins, John McKenzie. And we're going to be pairing it with Mona Lisa, yes. 1986, Bob Hoskins, um, uh, director there, uh, Neil Jordan. And so you can look forward to that episode next week. We're going to get real deep into the, uh, the barrel chest and receding hairline of our favorite <laughs> British gangster. Woo. Yes. And, uh, yeah, the long good Friday. What a, what a picture, what an uh, ending, damn. what a soundtrack. I watch, uh, I watch, Patreon. I watch both of those for the uh, first time right at the beginning of lockdown and they just knocked my socks off. They're so fucking good. Oh yeah. Yeah. They are, they are really fantastic. So we're probably going to do a big episode on that. Patreon.com slash Lizoids podcast. That's going to be next week. And then, uh, in two weeks time, uh, we are going to be back doing, uh, a, another main feed guest episode where we are going to be talking about one night in the city from 1950. Oh, hell yes. Uh, which I haven't seen, but I've heard is really great. Yeah. And uh, we're going to be pairing it with a classic, uh, The Sweet Smell of Success, 1957. Somehow we yeah, haven't covered it yet. Holy shit. And, uh, yeah, we're going to have a crazy November yeah. month uh, this year. And just for the hell of it, I'll say three weeks from now for the last episode we're doing, it's episode 200. So we've been, we wanted a, an episode that people have been asking for for a while. And uh, we were kind of like, we want to, you know, we wanted to throw in some, uh, some representation from across the globe crime cinema. We're going to talk about Takeshi Kitano and we're going to do Violent Cop and Sonatine cool. to round hey, out uh, our, our crime month here. And uh, yeah, look forward to all of that. It's coming in the next uh, two to three weeks, basically. Stoked. Yeah. So thanks so much, uh, as always, guys, for listening. And keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.